Who doesn't love a classic chocolate chip cookie? Famous Amos has been making them since the 70s, 1975 to be exact. With semi-sweet chocolate chips and a satisfying crunch, it's everything classic in one bite-sized cookie. And fans couldn't get enough. That's right. You'll find our original recipe, the one you know and love, in every bag of Famous Amos original chocolate chip cookies. Find Famous Amos anywhere you buy your favorite snacks. This episode is brought to you by Progressive, where drivers who save by switching save nearly $750 on average. Plus, auto customers qualify for an average of seven discounts. Quote now at Progressive.com to see if you could save. Progressive Casualty Insurance and Company and Affiliates. National average 12-month savings of $744 by new customers surveyed who saved with Progressive between June 2022 and May 2023. Potential savings will vary. Discounts not available in all states and situations. Start clean with Clorox because Clorox delivers a powerful clean every time. Because messes happen. Because... Yeah, the charcoal mess. Great, because why would I put that on my face when I could drop it in my sink? This is what I get for multitasking. Ugh, why is charcoal so sticky? <clears throat> Hello? Hey, Janice. I am so sorry. I thought I was on mute. <laughs> no, we don't need to reschedule. I'll just stay off camera. Ooh, yeah, that happens. So start clean with Clorox. Use Clorox products as directed. The year is 1965, and the headphones are alive with the sound of this podcast. The movie, The Sound of Music. Welcome to Unspooled. Unspooled. I am Amy Nicholson. And I am Paul Shear, and this is the podcast where each week we watch one film from the AFI's Top 100 Greatest Films of All Time, 2007 edition, to see if they are really as good as people say, do they hold up, and how have they influenced the films that we watch today. Uh, today we are going to be talking about The Sound of Music, but this is our post-Oscar week. Amy, I want to talk a little bit about the Oscars. Some big surprises this year. We thought that it was going to be a pretty uh, straightforward ceremony. And for the most part, it was. But I think there was some big uh, surprises in, in the form of the parasite. Oh, I thought you were going to say Eminem. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> Do you know why he performed? Yeah, because as my friend Mark Lasante pointed out, it is the 10-year anniversary of eight years after that movie came out. Oh, man. You know what? I did my research, and apparently Eminem did not show up to accept his Oscar. So that was the reason. He never showed up. And Academy members were begging for it. People have been asking for 18 years, when is Eminem going to show up on that stage? And they got it. Um, but was it the best rap performance of the night, Amy? That's the question I ask of you, because this is my favorite rap of the night. I'll stop that. And and here's what I'll say. I was really surprised that he was a World War Z stan. 
Like I felt like that was not. Uh, I think that wasn't ironic. I think he really wants to see a sequel to World War Z. And uh, I don't know. It seemed like it may have been a slam to Brad Pitt. I think he may have taken it that way. But I think this guy just really <laughs> likes World War Z. I mean, I wonder if the second half of the show felt a little slighted that they didn't get their own rhyming couplet. I was a little bit weirded out by the music of the Academy Awards. Uh, there was a lot of like aggressive performing, a lot of like, let's get in the audience and let's let's get like let's get on the floor. <laughs> like, like how many times do we have to just show that these people in the seats are not comfortable, they're not having a good time. Martin Scorsese falling asleep to Eminem, my new favorite gif of all time. Uh, but I mean. I mean, that brings up to me my great question about this entire Oscar season, which is where are Martin, Martin Scorsese's glasses? This has been bothering me, Ooh, and it LASIK? doesn't get brought up. He hasn't been wearing them this whole time, wow. and it keeps cutting to the commercials where he's got his cool little trademarks yeah. on. What's going on? Maybe he got LASIK. You think he got LASIK? I got LASIK. I love LASIK. Really? Yeah. I'm afraid Do you have LASIK? of LASIK. Oh, you should get LASIK. I have contacts. I don't want to see those lasers in my eyes. Oh, well, look, if there is a World War Z sequel, how will you live? How will you live? You can't see anything. <sighs> You're right. You're so right, Amy. I can wake up. I can run. I can swim. I know. I well, can't I can, swim, actually. I really. can do all of those things. Um, I actually thought that this Oscars was pretty, pretty good. I thought it had a generous spirit that yeah. I admired a lot to it. You know, Bong Joon-ho making like a big point of sharing the love, making Scorsese get a standing ovation in the middle of his own speech. Yeah. I mean, I want to ask you, you know, the award season is kind of two races, right? Like Mm -hmm. you're running for the trophy, like Mm -hmm. you want to get that prize, but also you want to wind up at the end of the award season beloved and not say a Rami Malek. So with that in mind- Wow, did Rami Malek get a little bit of- uh Anger? I didn't know that. Yeah, I think people kind of over him. I think Matthew McConaughey is another example. When he won his Oscar, right. the McConaughey sense was like instantly over because right. of his speech was a little clumsy. I also felt like Quentin Tarantino lost the screenplay Oscar for himself when he gave that speech at the Golden Globes that was like, the only person I could think for this is me. Mm. So with that in mind, who do you think was the ultimate, ultimate winner, not just in trophy, but in goodwill in this industry? Do you think well, it was Brad Pitt or do you think it was Bon Joon Ho? I was going to say that's going to be the, the real... The real conversation. I'm going to say that Bong uh, had multiple times to get up there. And I felt like he got to do something different in each one of those acceptance speeches. But I have to say, I was really kind of blown away by Brad Pitt in the sense of a traditional Hollywood story. This like leading man who I was not expecting him to get uh, like teary eyed. I thought it was a very sweet speech. It wasn't anything incredibly grandiose. I thought that Joaquin Phoenix gave this really uh, amazing speech. And I think he's been, we talked about this last week, all these amazing speeches and very heartfelt and very much looking at himself and looking at the audience and looking at the world. And I think that that was really cool, but there is something very traditional and really lovely. I think about Laura Dern and Brad Pitt's speech that was just like, I am happy. This is lovely. What a great time. It just felt genuine and nice and, and wonderful. And, uh, and, you know, and and I also believe that everyone at the time, Parasite won an award. It was equally great. But there was something about those two, and especially Brad Pitt, that he got a little teary-eyed that really uh, moved me. I, I kept thinking, Brad Pitt has officially won the divorce. And mm-hmm. I know that, like, marriage story movies like that are not supposed to tell us, like, there is no winning in divorce. But it could have been touch and go for Brad Pitt a year ago. You know, yeah. like, he divorced famously one of the most beautiful women in the world, a very long-term couple, a bazillion kids. There were you know, magazine profiles that were just like, I'm a bachelor. I drink a lot of beer. I don't know what I'm doing with my life. And then he has this year where he's like, 
I take off my shirt. My abs are amazing. I win an Oscar. All of my speeches are so big and golden and lovely yeah. that you'd love me. This town loves them even more than it did two years ago. But it's so, I, think, I, think, I think it wins. But, you know, it's so crazy. When you look at his work, it is consistently great. And I think Laura Dern has consistently great work. And I think that Bong Joon-ho, his work is amazing, too. Like, you have these people who have, and not to say that anybody else that is nominated doesn't have the same thing, but these are just people that are just doing the work all the time and have not gotten recognized. And I do like that because you look at Brad Pitt, like he has put so much of a stamp on some of the biggest movies that we have. And uh, I think his work as a producer is going to be just as important going forward based on his track record so far. Yeah. I just look at his work and it makes me excited. I mean, from 12 Monkeys to his like work with the Coen brothers to Ocean's Eleven to Inglorious Bastards to, to Fight, Fight Club. Club, which is so good still. I know it's there, and he's worked with all these great people. Uh, you know, and it, you know, uh, from like I, I'm not the biggest Tree of Life fan, but it's like I just love that he goes out and makes these really interesting films. And there could have been the version of Brad Pitt that did what McConaughey did for those um period of years where he was doing like romantic comedies and stuff like that but i think he's always trying to do something different and something interesting so i'm i'm a big uh i'm a big fan well i hope that brad pitt's oscar sets the table for tom cruise to get competitive and go back and try to win an oscar again because he gave up i feel yeah. like and he has not tried to win an oscar for so long he's just tried to have a big box office well hit. i think he had to try to come back i mean that yeah. was kind of it and i have to say too Laura Dern is just like an incredible national treasure. And that the fact that she is, she has been somebody who has also done big movie, like big, big movies. I mean, from Jurassic Park to Star Wars and then uh, even Jurassic World. She's in that. But then does all these really great smaller films, you know, uh, from Wild at Heart and Marriage Story and uh, Little Women. It's like that's, you know, it's like she's just consistently consistently good and i don't know i like that that story i just think that story of hollywood is is the most exciting one to me i think there's always that ooh new shiny i've never heard of this person before they have only one movie to their name but there's something like really fulfilling about giving it to somebody who has like a great body of of work yeah i mean uh, Brody over at The New Yorker, he theorized that she was going to lose that Oscar because people in Hollywood have been through so many expensive divorces mm. that they would have to hate her character. <laughs> and to me, I felt a little bit like she's so good in everything. I don't care so much personally that she wins for this as opposed to literally anything else she touches. She's a fantastic in all of it. But that's how I felt about most of the supporting actress category, to be to be honest. I was like, we're going to see Margot Robbie appear a million more times. We're going to yeah. see Florence Pugh appear a million more times. It doesn't really matter. Like which particular film is the best? Because honestly, they're they're just never going to go away. They're all so good. But you know, this Oscar ceremony was also really important because it's the first time a foreign language film won the Best Picture Oscar. I mean, that was history, history in the making, right there. Yeah, it absolutely was. And you know, I think you and I both get a little bit like not frustrated, but we've been talking about American movies exclusively on this podcast yeah. because it's an American list. I think there's like this hunger to be like. We want to talk about the cool stuff from the rest of the world. And and I think now if Parasite has broken that barrier and become the first foreign language film to win the top, 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 top picture, I think I want to talk about Parasite. Yes, I totally agree. And I think what we should do is postpone our episode for next week and talk about Parasite. And we'll do a special Parasite episode. We can really get into it because it's a movie that I certainly loved. I think it's a movie that also has a barrier for entry for a lot of people out there. People don't 
often run to subtitled films. Um, and that's fine. Um, I think you're missing out if you don't. But um, I think it would be a great way to watch this film. It is out right now on uh, streaming. It's also in the movie theaters. If you're in the UK, it just came out in the theaters there. So there's plenty of opportunities to go see this movie. We can talk about it. So I think we're going to postpone our episode next week. We're going to talk about Parasite, which I'm very, very excited about. And then finally, Amy, I have one question for you. Uh-huh. about the Oscars. And it's and you think I'm going to be setting you up, but I'm not. There was a lot of talk about how, oh my gosh, not only did a foreign language picture win Best Picture, but it was also the first time since Robert De Niro won uh, his award for Godfather 2 that two actors got an Academy Award for playing the same role. And I say that's bullshit because Heath Ledger's Joker and uh, Joaquin Phoenix's Joker don't seem to be the same character to me. Like I, it, it, they're in name only, in name only. It's not like I. That's a very unique thing. The the uh, Brando well, De Niro. That's the thing. thing. The Joker has become our modern Hamlet. This is the closest thing our generation has to a Hamlet. Where if I if I am the greatest director of this uh, greatest actor of this generation, I'm going to be like, well, this is all wonderful. I guess I could play King Lear someday, but when am I really going to play the Joker? But and then you can take it in different directions. But I will say, I don't know if you've seen Birds of Prey. No, I have not yet. I saw Birds of Prey. It is so, so, so fun. I hear and it's great. And there's no way you can watch Birds of Prey and see that amazing Harley Quinn and imagine her even looking at Joaquin Phoenix's Joker, talking to him for a minute. He'd be so bored. But, I mean, I think that we're, we're to believe, and this is where, I mean, if I want to nerd out on it, I'm going to say this. Joaquin Phoenix's character, Arthur Fleck, is never going to be the Joker. Like, he is going to inspire the Joker, to create chaos. I believe that. Like, if you're going to build out that trilogy, that character is, you know, is mentally ill. He is, you know, where the Joker, I think, also has issues, uh, but is creating chaos. I think that, that that his character, Joaquin Phoenix's character, is crying out for help. I just think it's like, it's a very... It, okay, okay. Yeah. But, I mean, if if the Joker, as we know and love him... yes is such a chaos monster, is such an innovator in terms yes. of the havoc he can wreak on Gotham City. I don't see him biting another dude's look. Oh, well, I mean, don't you think that it's like a copycat thing? Like, oh my gosh, everyone's, I mean, everyone's wearing clown masks, spoiler alert, at the end of uh, at the end of Joker, Todd Phillips' Joker. So I feel like, oh yeah, now I'll just wear this too. I mean, there's He's so much- He's a showboat, not a copycat. I don't know. I don't know, Amy. I mean, okay, I, mean I, agree with, I agree with you ultimately, but isn't the Joker by trade a copycat because he's pretending to be a clown? Oh, I mean, if you're going to trademark all clowns. Well, like, I'm just I, saying. Can like, I trademark I'm all just blonds? saying, like, I mean, well, look, I mean, we're talking about a world of superheroes. All of a sudden, this guy's like, I'm the clown. The, the most, you understand that that's a thing. Like, he's co-opting clown culture for his own thing. He looks just like a clown. Okay, okay, but do you think, like... Slipknot is co-opting clown culture? Yes! <laughs> okay, but do you think Slipknot and the Joker are, like, the same? Do I think they're the same? I think that they're both co-opting something that we understand and, and like, skewing it. Like, okay, wait. I'd rather someone go, I'm a human penguin. What? i never heard that before <laughs> in my entire life. Or, like, Harley Quinn. Well, she's a she's a also skewing uh, clowns. Like like I want to I want to have people give me a, a weirder thing. Like like give me if you're gonna like become a supervillain, platypus man. Yes, bring it. Can I? Sandman. Say how- I've not seen Sand as a you know. Let's do it. 
I want to rat off. you out a bit. I'm going to rat you out a bit Wait. if you don't mind. Okay. <laughs> I'm ratting you out as a nice guy. I went to a climate pr- uh, protest on yes. the Friday before the Oscars. Yes, he did. And I suddenly had this insight of, oh, wow, Paul's going to become Team Joker because Jane Fonda was there. She's brought Fire yes. Drill Fridays where you got arrested in D.C. here yes. to Los Angeles, which mm-hmm. is great. She brought some people on stage. She brought you out and she brought Joaquin Phoenix yes. out. And I thought, oh, here we go. The fix is in. I mean, it was so funny because I got off stage. I was starting to laugh because when I got on stage, I was standing right next to Joaquin. Like, literally, like, he touched my arm. That's how much we were standing next to each other. And did you melt? Uh, I did melt. I mean, he was a lovely guy. Uh, He was very nice uh, that entire day. But, and as soon as I got off stage, I see a text from Amy. (laughs) And I was like, didn't even realize that you were there. But uh, I was like, oh, has anyone got, like, I'm glad that you caught that uh, me and Joaquin were out there uh, together. Um, but no, I am a Joker guy. I am a Joker guy in the sense that I think that that, that performance was amazing. I totally uh, believe that was the best performance of the year. I am glad. It was lovely to go from seeing you guys, Jane Fonda, in a park with a bunch of people holding up signs yeah. to just a few days later. Him in a fancy tux, Jane Fonda in a beautiful ball gown closing yes, out the Oscars. so cool. I love that. I love that. I also love that Jane Fonda wore a dress that she'd won to the Oscars six years ago. Because why are we spending more money and time and resources on new dresses well, that we only wear once? Jane Fonda is not buying any new clothes. That's part of her whole thing. So nothing that she is wearing anymore is going to be bought. It's it, She's just going on what she already has. I love that. That's yeah. also a commitment to staying your same size. Uh, Margot Robbie <laughs> did the similar thing. She was not something she already owned, but she wore like a dress from the 90s to the Oscars. Uh, I think Elizabeth Banks did that last night as well. She had two pictures from the Vanity Fair party, one in the same dress. Um, and it's really interesting. Um, my wife, June, she's also on a clothes freeze as well. And it's for basically the idea that fast fashion is something that really contributes to a global warming. And so this idea of keeping it there. And I love that Jane Fonda was able to be political uh, without having to call that much attention to it. She came out in her red jacket, which is what she wears to every fire drill Friday. She had it draped over her arm. Uh, she talked about raising awareness, but was not specific to what she was raising awareness to. And I thought that was actually so classy and so cool. And, uh, yeah. And I, and I, what did you think of Joaquin's speech, by the way? Cause I do think he deserved it. I think he was great. My buddy Joaquin. Did you like his speech? I did like his speech. I did like his speech. I, I thought it was interesting that he was trying to bridge the gap of cancel culture a little bit to say like, where do we go from here? And I was wondering, you know, I bet that has a little bit of personal relevance for him. One of his best friends is Casey Affleck. And yeah, I don't know. I thought that went over well in the room. I don't mind him talking about how we need to drink less actual milk. I've been trying to make cashew milk at my house. I'm not a vegan. You got to do eat less oat milk. Things. Oh, yeah. Oat milk is the is is uh, is great. Is oat milk? I mean, I've been grinding cashews. Oh, you don't have to just go to the store and get I oat feel, milk. Do you know no. how cool I feel when I, I mean I, when I impressive. grind cashews and I'm like making milk? I feel pretty um, cool. I have to say that I thought I loved his speeches. We played it last time throughout this whole you know, win streak. I thought last night was a little bit all over the place, but there was two things that were really interesting about it. One, the image of the cow has stuck out to me. This is now uh, a little bit later. And I'm like, wow, well, that was really great imagery. Like he, he planted something in my mind um, in a way that I had not thought about it. And I love this. And I have a part of his speech here that I just wanted to read where he's like, I think whether we're talking about gender inequality, racism, queer rights, or indigenous rights, or animal rights, we're talking about the fight against injustice. And I love that idea that by putting everything under the same roof, it is this idea that what we are, there's so many things that are going on right now. And it's, and they're all coming from the same 
place. And I just thought that that was really, uh, you know, to your point, like it's an interesting way to kind of put us all under in a time where we're incredibly polarized, put us all under the same roof. You I know? appreciate that because I think, I think there is sometimes pushback when you try to talk about animal rights, like that's not the most important thing. Or when you try to yes. talk about feminism or voting rights, you're like, well, the environment's the most important thing. There's this, that, that all of these, that we're all on the same fight, but yet we keep tearing each other apart because we can't agree on which one to tackle. So we tackle nothing. Exactly. He goes, and I, I love this. It continues. He says, like, we're talking about the fight against the belief that one nation, one people, one race, one gender, or one species has the right to dominate, control, use, and exploit another with impunity. And I just think that that, like, he really, I think that's the speech that it feels like the best speech to make at the Oscars in a way, because it is... It is just saying, like, this is part of what we have to do as a culture. Like, we can't let ourselves be run over by any by anybody, and we have to protect the people who are. And I, I, I don't know. I'm, I'm, uh, I continue to be a fan, and I, I also like that he also has kind of worked in a, his own apology tour on this as well. Like, you know, saying I've been difficult, I've been hard, and people have gave me a second chance. Also, uh, Taika Waititi won for Best Adapted Screenplay last night for Jojo Rabbit. So excited to see him win. I'm a fan. Uh, I also like that throughout the night, there was also acknowledgement of indigenous people and the land that we're on. I thought that was so cool. But yeah, that's been a cool thing. I don't know if you've been to any film festivals in the last year, mm. but that has been a major thing that just started to – the first time I noticed it was at Toronto this year in September. Yeah. Where every time they played a film before they did, the person who came and announced it from TIFF would always, like, make a point of mentioning we're on Indigenous land, thanking the tribe for being there. And then Sundance picked that up this year too. Every screening Sundance would also thank the Indigenous lands. And I like that this is just a continual – conversational reminder. I totally agree. Uh, when I gave my speech at Fire Drill Friday, I did the same thing because I saw it somewhere else. And I thought it was such a cool, classy thing to do. And I really love that that's coming about. I did think, though, Taika saved some of his more powerful opinions for backstage at the Oscars. And I wanted to play for you uh, something else. What are some of the needs that you believe that writers should be asking for in the next round of talks with producers? Um, Apple needs to fix those keyboards. Though they are impossible to write on, they've, got, they've gotten worse. It makes, me, it makes me want to go back to PCs because PC keyboard, the bounce back on for your fingers is way better. I know, hands up who still uses a PC. You know what I'm talking about. It's a way better keyboard. And those Apple keyboards are horrendous, especially as the computers, as the, as the laptops get newer and newer. I mean, the, uh, here's the, new, the, latest, the latest one, the latest uh, new iMac. The keyboards are worse. So yeah, he goes on for another thirty seconds about the Apple keyboard. Which oh, wait, I, I really, really res respect that because a he's a to writer. Almost, to almost Jane Fonda's point, he's talking about planned obsolescence and things getting made and cheaper yeah. and worse and worse and worse. I have an old Mac that I'm terrified of when it actually dies. I think it's from 2012 because I, I keep hearing how awful the keyboards are and I don't want to use one. And also, there's a little bit of me that takes pleasure because you know I am a Samsung user for oh, my phone, yes. which is very politicized in many circles, but it's because I hate Apple's control and I'll never use those headphones in my life. <laughs> I love those headphones. How can you love those headphones? <laughs> the AirPod Pros? Yes. Have you tried them? God, no. <sighs> Amy. Why would I try a tiny thing that I can lose? I mean, why would you fall in love if you... <laughs> <laughs> I'll have you know my boyfriend is very strapping. 
everything that is fr- everything that is worthwhile is fragile, and you could be lose it in a second. Oh my god! On that note, <laughs> maybe we should talk about a film that I think did what takes Jane Fonda's lesson to a next level. Why buy new clothes? Why invest in fast fashion when you can make clothes out of curtains? Oh wow! You know um, this movie, Sound of Music is really a, a toe-tapper, Amy. And I think one of the uh, the most popular songs in the film is Do Re Mi. And I think maybe the best way to start off uh, this episode is to hear our listeners take a crack at singing some Sound of Music. Here you go. What up, all and Amy? Sound of Music time. Fuck yeah. Do a deer, a female deer. Raise that drop of golden sun. Me, a name I call myself for a long, long way to run. So, a needle pulling thread. La, a note you follow so. Tea, a drink with jam and bread. That will bring us back to do tea, blah, so, bomb, we break dough. Do, re, mi, fa, so, la, ti, do, so, do. That was amazing. That was a banger. Thank you guys for being brave and calling in. All right. And now, Amy, let's unspool it. (laughs) The year is 1965. Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. leads a civil rights march in Alabama from Selma to Montgomery. Race riots break out in Watts, leaving large parts of the city burnt and looted and 34 people dead. St. Louis unveils its gateway arch, a 630-foot-tall parabolic steel monument. The miniskirt appears in London and takes fashion by storm. The Beatles release the movie and album Help. Audiences are watching Dr. Zhivago, The Greatest Story Ever Told, and The Cincinnati Kid. The film we're talking about today comes in at number 40 on AFI's Top 100 list in 2007, having risen 15 points from its position at 55 in 1997. And it is, of course, The Sound of Music. Let's take a listen to a clip. What's it about? The Sound of Music. It is the story of the Von Tropp family singers. A real-life family that was living in Austria, had to leave during the rise of Hitler, came to America and became singing sensations. Seven kids singing in harmony. They eventually had more. When their mother, Maria, an ex-nun here played by Julie Andrews, gave birth to more children, fathered by Christopher Plummer, who is playing Captain Von Trapp. They walk, they sing, they're always in green fields, and then Nazis show up. It's a big old musical. I mean, this is the quintessential musical. And I, I'm going to tell you right out of the gate, you know, this is something that I've really avoided my entire life, The Sound of Music. It just, it felt so long to me. I know all the songs, they're in my head, but I never have really sat down to watch it. I don't Whoa, know how- you never seen The Sound of Music? I mean, when I watched it, I definitely have seen all of it. I will tell you (laughs) that I watched the live NBC telecast of Sound of Music when it was on a few years ago. Um, But I know all the songs. There wasn't a single song that was 
like, oh, I never heard that before. So it's weird. It's one of those movies that is so much in my body, but I don't think I ever saw it. I think in my mind, I was like, this is the more boring version of Mary Poppins. And I don't even like Mary Poppins. Um, as a you kid, you don't like Mary Poppins. As a kid, I'm just saying. As a kid, I'm in the zone of like watching like Goonies and Star Wars, and Mary Poppins wasn't my go-to. I wasn't a I wasn't a fan of that movie. No, you I wasn't a pophead. I, I wasn't a pophead. Uh, I mean, no, the Return of Mary Poppins. Yeah, what loved it. What the fuck is the Return of Mary Poppins? I'm sorry, Mary Poppins Returns. <laughs> That's the one I'm a fan of. You watched that? No, I'm just joking, okay. Amy. <laughs> I mean, God, who knows? Who knows? We talked about it on this show at length. Um, <laughs> we talk about a lot of things. Um, no, I mean, but that's no, that my, I mean, that's my yeah. that's my association with it. It's sort of like I've I've kept this movie at bay because it's like, oh, it's three hours. Like, I, ugh, like just I don't know. I just it always just felt like a slog to me. Yeah, this is definitely one that I knew so well. Because my mother sang every song to me all the time when I was a child. Yeah. Really. I think I knew all of the songs definitely before I saw the movie. I don't remember when I saw the movie. To me, this is in the key of Wizard of Oz, although I love Wizard of Oz more mm -hmm. than this film. But it was just always there. You know, right. I don't know a life that wasn't Sound of Music as kind of the choral of my mother singing Edelweiss to me as a lullaby when I'm little. I mean, I love that. I mean, the songs here are undeniable, right? They are, I mean, quite frankly, some of the most memorable songs in any movie musical. I, I, I don't think you could maybe put a couple of movie musicals next to it. Like, all right, well, Grease. Yeah, I know a lot of the songs from Grease for sure. Um, Do you have a favorite song here? Wow, that's, you know, I mean, Edelweiss is beautiful. It's really amazing. Um, there are some really sad songs here, which I really like. You know, I I don't know. They all... They all work for me. I don't like I nothing jumps out to me like, oh, I need to hear that again. I, I love Dore Me, especially as sung by our listeners. Um, what about you? I, I think I am 16 going on 17 oh, is always yeah. stuck in my head. It's been stuck in my head since I rewatched this. Yeah. It fits with everything. You know, like I'm a pizza. I'm on the way now. Our <laughs> pizza took forever to, for Oscar night. So that's the first thing on my head. Um but what I've been really excited to talk about with The Sound of Music is as I was getting all my thoughts together for this episode, I realized I think this is the episode with the film that brings the most of the threads together that we've had on mm. this entire series so far. You know, I mean, first off, it's directed by the man who edited Citizen Kane. Oh, wow. Okay. Yeah, that's Robert Wise edited Citizen Kane. Then he did West Side Story. Then he comes and he does Sound of Music a few years later. Mm -hmm. And... It's in this pivotal moment that I think divides so much of what we have on this list from like old Hollywood to what we call the right. new Hollywood. You know, this was this film that entered in the 60s, kind of like an argument flashpoint. And to, and to set the table a little bit on this, it's made by Fox. Mm -hmm. R.I.P. Fox. Right. Um, but Fox is in trouble when the West Side story comes out for something we've already talked about. They have put all their money down on Cleopatra. Mm. And Elizabeth Taylor and Richard Burton are in trouble. They're being censored by the government because of their affair that they're having during the making of Cleopatra. Fox is like, we might lose everything we have. They're very much at risk of shutting down as a studio. Enter a family we know, the right. Zanuck's. Okay. And Zanuck puts his son, our Zanuck who made Gone with the Wind, puts his son in charge of The Sound of Music. He looks through all these scripts that they've kind of had on file, that they've been thinking about making, and he says this – it's been cornified. People think that this movie is kind of dumb. People think this isn't what we should be making, like a big family-ish spectacle again. Yeah. But he thinks, you know what? 
this is the kind of period epic that we can really make a lot of money on. And so he does what Zanuck does. He basically bets the farm on this kind of whitewashed version of history with another sort of insensitive opening, just like Gone with the Wind had, you know, talking about this golden era, forgetting that there's already like dissent and negativity happening in Europe at that time. And then this film comes out and makes a ton of money and becomes this flashpoint for critics all around the spectrum saying like, hold on, hold on, hold on. We've been taking this industry in a cool new direction. We've been making things like Psycho. We've been making things like Dr. Strangelove. And you're taking us back with these giant old epics that we don't want anymore. And it becomes so polarizing that several critics lose their jobs for writing negative reviews about it. I mean, this film really is just this fulcrum of everything we've been talking about. Who doesn't love a classic chocolate chip cookie? Famous Amos has been making them since the 70s. 1975, to be exact. With semi-sweet chocolate chips and a satisfying crunch, it's everything classic in one bite-sized cookie. And fans couldn't get enough. That's right. You'll find our original recipe, the one you know and love, in every bag of Famous Amos original chocolate chip cookies. Find Famous Amos anywhere you buy your favorite snacks. Life is a highway. And on it, there will be many chicken sandwiches. But there's only one crispy. So go ahead and hit the turn signal if you know about this juicy gem of a detour. I love that you're putting it in this context because I think watching it, I was kind of conflicted with it. Um, I think I want to look at this in a few different ways. You know, one through the lens of based on everything else that we've watched. I think that's a conversation we can have, right? But then the impact that it has on our society, right? And not only our society, uh, you know, the fact that this movie, like when it came out on uh, VHS is like on the charts for 250 weeks, five years, like on the top charts, or like when this movie comes out in Korea, it's playing four or five times a day. it's like so popular. It connects with people. And then there's just the music. And I think that, you know, not to keep on bringing this back to the uh, Academy Awards, but the idea of like when, you know, music is such a powerful uh, instrument to film and when used effectively, like these songs, like I said, I know these songs and I don't think I've ever sat down to watch this movie from beginning to end. And there is something about that. This this movie is a very interesting enigma because I think on the top of it, I don't think it's a good movie, but I can't deny the other two things. Like plot wise, film wise, I don't think this is a good movie. Well, yeah. And that popularity, I think, is part of what makes this such a fascinating story to talk about because remember back in our american graffiti episode yeah we were talking about how george lucas showed up met francis Ford coppola who was like hollywood has nothing going on they're only making a couple films a year they're all really expensive things trying to do what sound of music did Mm -hmm. he's like there's nothing here for anybody who's creative and artistic because all of the energy all of the money that anybody has is trying to duplicate this insane success with these safe musicals made for families trying to get the sound of music dollars i mean it's basically the same argument that people are having today about the avengers Mm-hmm. Like, you make this giant thing, now everybody else wants to make that same giant thing, and we can't get anything cool made. We're well, having the same conversation. It's crazy. Well, I think we're always going to have this conversation, this wrestling of art and commerce, right? And sometimes they mix, and you get a movie that's extremely popular, um, and that is also 
you know, independent and artistic and it's really pushing the boundaries. Um, and then most of the times though, you get something that is independent and well-loved, but very niche or something that is like this. And I think you can't make an argument, you know, you can't sit here and go, this movie is bad. It's not bad because it's beloved and people love it. Like you can't say like, oh, you love it because they haven't seen something else. No, it, it works. So there's something about this that works and that it captures the imagination. And I think it's something that we wrestle with all the time. And it's almost a perfect film for this list. It's like, it is to, you know, to our joke always about Green Book. It's it's that kind of a movie. It's a movie that kind of unites a lot of people. Oh, God, wait. If we do an episode about Parasite, does that mean we retroactively have to do one about Green no, Book? No, <laughs> no, no. We're doing an episode about Parasite, not about Green Book. <laughs> okay, just checking. Don't you think that there's something about that, like that that inherent battle? This list is fighting that battle all the time. Like what's popular versus what is important? Like is this movie important or is it popular? And can you separate the two? Totally. And, you know, it's interesting to trace it back and see how the movie came together and realize it wasn't expected to be as popular as it was. You know, the story here is that people knew the Von Trapp singers. They'd made a musical version of The Sound of Music a few years ago. It hadn't done that well on Broadway. Right. It was fine. Mary Martin starred in it. People thought it was a little bit dorky. It became a joke, actually, even of people like Julie Andrews herself, who in 1962, before she says she's going to play Maria in the in this big movie adaptation is doing this skit show with Carol Burnett on Broadway where she's making fun of it because she thinks that this is terrible. She's playing the Maria-ish figure here. She's the one you hear sing first. That I used to sing when I was a happy nun back home in Switzerland. So she's doing this pre-even signing on or she's... Pre-signing on. She thought she would never get this part because she made fun of it so much. I mean, it would be like if we did a musical version of Green Book and we're like, I eat a pizza and <laughs> I am real dumb. And then there's something like, do you want to do Green Book 2? It, it, it should be like, I eat pizza, but barbecue is fun. <laughs> um, <laughs> but, but yeah, I mean, this was a punching bag. Sound of Music was a punching bag to the hip cognoscenti. I am blown away by the fact that Julie Andrews does Mary Poppins in 64 and this in 65. It is the same movie, and I'd argue Mary Poppins is a better movie. Mary Poppins is a better movie. It is. It's not on the list. Um, I know. It's that thing where it's like, do you want us to fight the British for it? Can we fight the way that we fought for Lawrence of Arabia? But it's like, isn't it crazy, though, that that, that, that movie, it, like... Well, it's that like, that yeah. you would do that as an actor, like it's it's not like oh it's similar. It is, it is. I mean, it's it's you can draw so many lines. To, I am a nun who comes in for these unruly children, and I yes. save the day. She's missing an umbrella. Like that's basically the magical elements are gone. Like, but and there's not. We well, you know she's missing an umbrella. What? Is this movie loves to get women wet? Everybody's wet in this movie. They're like, yeah, get, get them, them in the river, Flip get them in boat. the rain, get the women wet. Well, here's the thing, though, Amy, and I think this movie is important because they do show you, like, women need to be contained, right? 
And I say it over and over again. Finally. And I don't listen. I'm sorry. <laughs> um, but I mean, it's interesting that this is also based on a true story. Again, mm -hmm. these elements that we see coming into yeah. the AFI list. And she gets cast off of Mary Poppins before Mary Poppins comes out. What happens is they're trying so hard to figure out who can be this Maria. We need somebody like Mary Poppins. And yeah. then they get Mary Poppins. Yeah, Mary Poppins, they, they've got shown some early test footage of Mary Poppins before the movie came out. And they were like, that's it. We have to sign her up right now because nobody else can play this type of. Because she's already done it. Yeah. She's competing with herself. You basically got a sequel to Mary Poppins the next year. And I argue that maybe that's the reason why this movie is so successful. Because Mary Poppins is beloved. And then you're basically going to see her do a sequel yeah. to it with better music. Mary Poppins 2, Quilted Derndaloo. <laughs> Mary Poppins 2, Swiss Alps and Nazis 2. Uh, but, <laughs> but yeah, I mean, but imagine what that was like if you were in the movie theater. You're, here is Julie Andrews. She's a person that people don't really know because mm -hmm. she's coming out of Broadway. It's sort of like the explosion of Lin-Manuel Miranda suddenly. If he had started two movies back to back that were massive here. Giant. 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 Where you're like, here's a person who's incredibly talented, well-respected. We haven't really put them in Hollywood yet. We don't know what to do with them. And then suddenly back to back, Oscar nominated giant blockbuster successes. Yeah. I mean, that is a crazy idea that, that like that you could explode that big, you know. Uh, a funny story is that Julie Andrews would sing supercalifragilisticexpialidocious to the kids on set, and they thought that was a song that she made up, but they didn't see Mary Poppins yet because it wasn't out. So I think they were <laughs> their mind was kind of blown when <laughs> it came uh, came out. Well, no, if we're talking about the popular image of of Julie Andrews after these films came mm -hmm. out, she ends up marrying um, Blake Edwards, yes. the filmmaker of, Bre of Breakfast at Tiffany's, and, and Victor Victoria, which and Victor became Victoria. a musical, and. Um, the first thing he says to her when they meet is, I've had this running joke with people that the reason you're so popular is because you have lilacs for pubic hair. And she just looks him in the eye and goes, however, did you know? Uh, and then they fell in love. I love it. But she seems, and I'll tell you that I met Julie Andrews one time and she was the coolest, loveliest person with no reason to be nice to me at all. Especially now. Especially God, now. heard about this. No, but I mean, look, the reason why this movie is good um, or the reason why this movie has a staying power. She's amazing. She's in incredible. It. And she's amazing in Mary Poppins. And her voice is beautiful. And she is, she's just great. Like she makes this movie uh, watch every time she's on screen. Yeah. I, 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 And that's the thing I wrestle with. I'm like, I can talk about this movie analytically and I can say like, okay, well, there's no antagonist. Really? Like, you know, there's no yeah, don't conflict. Don't you call my Baroness the antagonist because no. I love her. By the way, she's not. She's really not. She, she's like, hey, you should go back home. She does, and then she comes back. She's like, all right, I'm going to go home now. Like, it, it's it's very, like, the oh, movie yeah. is very, it, it's aggressively, and I'm not saying it's saccharine. It's just, there's no, like, energy to it. There's no, like, well, we need to get to this next thing. We, I need to find out what's happened. It's so kind of, like, there's no, the consequences are very light until, like, the last 20 minutes. And it's like, okay, well, and even those consequences are kind of light. They're not, it's not like a big. It's Nazi light? I mean, it's Nazi light to a certain degree. Yeah, to a certain degree. It's like, you got to work at the naval station for the Nazis. Like, oh, it's not like, they're not, you're not, not like the family's being taken out. It's like, I, I refuse. I don't agree with Nazis. Well, all right, well, you got to go report. Like, it's, it's I mean, and, and, you know, I'm not making light of Nazism or what happened. I'm just saying, but like, it's not like we've watched Sophie's Choice. We've seen Schindler's List. Like, in the grand consequences of like Nazi issues, it's pretty light. It's like the Third Reich is now taken over. We'd like you to work for us. I refuse. 
It, I mean, that's true. And that actually is part of the family's true story is, you know, Austria, uh, the reason why they had to leave is, A, the dad was going to get conscripted back into the mm-hmm. Navy. B, they wanted the eldest son. There's an older son they write out of here. Right. They wanted him to go and be a doctor for the Nazis. Okay. And C, they wanted the Von Trapps to sing happy birthday on the radio to Hitler. Oh, And wow. they were like, we don't want to do that. And all three of these requests came in from the Nazi party to the Von Trapps at the same time. And they were like... You know, you can, it's like if you're getting invited to the party of somebody that you don't really like. If you turn down one invitation, right. eh, you can make an excuse. Right. Two is questionable, but three, you're like, they know I hate them now. And so they realized if they said no to all three things, they were done. Right. And they so were... they, they before they said no, they all they had to leave the country. Did they you... took a train, by the way. Oh, they yes. Didn't they didn't get on foot. Yeah, because it's like, <laughs> um, but, you know, uh, the, the whole thing was like they – they hiked over the Alps to Switzerland in the movie, but in reality, they walked to the local train station, ported the next train to Italy. From Italy, they fled to London and ultimately the U.S. By the way, if they did try to hike, they would have just gotten closer to Hitler because the way their house was, uh, if they hiked over the mountains, they would have just ended up right near Hitler's mountain retreat. <laughs> well, yeah, that's one of the weird things about this is Hitler, Hitler was pretty next door for a lot of the war. I mean, Hitler... There's a story where the real Maria and the real and the real captain went to a restaurant and Hitler was just there. And they're like, oh, God, Hitler's there. He was and, eating pizza and barbecue. Yeah. And their mansion was lovely enough that when they left town, it became taken over by Himmler. So oh, Himmler wow. moved into the actual Von Trapp mansion that he built. He had kind of set aside some guest quarters for Hitler. So when Hitler would come to that area, Hitler would stay at the Von Trapp's place. And when you think about it, that means that. Basically, a lot of the planning of the final solution, a lot of grim stuff happened. Oof. Those conversations took place in the real Von Trapp home. Well, you know, it's interesting to think of these people as being real because the movie does uh, make them – I mean, the dad is almost comical and, and, and the kids are so cute. I mean, my gosh, that little girl, the best. But um, – I, I love th- that little girl because she always looks like she has indigestion. Mm. She looks like a very old man with gout. I love it all. I love it all. But she the- grew up beautiful. Okay, great. Um, well, I'll tell you this much that, um, you know, there was very little information on Captain Von Trapp. So Christopher Plummer wanted to do his due diligence and, you know, figure out what made this guy tick. And he went to the Salzburg Mountains with an interpreter. And so he met with George's nephew who said that Captain Von Trapp was the most boring man he'd ever met. Which, so it's like, it's so funny that like, even the real life inspiration, and by the way, Christopher Plummer is full of sour grapes on this movie. I mean, you're not going to get any positivity out of Christopher Plummer. He's basically saying, he called it the sound of mucus. He called it S&M. He said working with Julie Andrews is like being hit over the head with a big Valentine's Day card every day. He called her Mrs. Disney. He said that Edelweiss is, his, he hates that song. Like, I mean, Christopher Plummer, not a fan. <laughs> No, he was brutal. I mean, the story with Christopher Plummer is that he did not want to be in this film. He yeah. was like, I am a Hamlet type. I am a Joker type. I should not <laughs> be doing this. And that he wouldn't talk to the kids the whole time. The only kid he ever talked to was Charmian, who played the oldest one, because mm-hmm. she was 21. And at night, they could hang out and drink. Okay. And so they'd have champagne or this pear schnapps kind of brandy thing. Right. But the younger kids, he apparently never talked to them once. And it was maybe to keep them in character, to keep them nervous around him. But also... He just hated this. I mean, one of the things he said about it was filming The Sound of Music was like acting out the Lord's Prayer every day. And that it was absolutely absolutely my intention to play at the absurd, to be irreverent, because I felt like if I didn't, if we took our roles too seriously, the whole thing was going to come off schmaltzy. Well, I mean, I think that for Christopher Plummer's part, he does a very good job. Like, I 
I like Christopher Plummer in this. Like, it's a pretty insane character, and especially his turn to, I mean, I like the opening scene. Like, when he introduces the kids, let's play that for a second. What's wrong with the children, sir? Well, there's nothing wrong with the children. Only the governesses. They were completely unable to maintain discipline. Without it, this house cannot be properly run. You will please remember that, Fraulein? Yes, sir. Every morning you will drill the children in their studies. I will not permit them to dream away their summer holidays. Each afternoon they will march about the grounds, breathing deeply. Bedtime is to be strictly observed, no exceptions. Excuse me, sir, when do they play? You will see to it that they conduct themselves at all time with the utmost orderliness and decorum. I'm placing you in command. Yes, sir. I mean, you know who he is here. Yes. He is like the great-grandfather of Christian Grey. And all these like stern, uptight men that you wind up falling madly, hotly oh, sexually boy. for. Not that there's not much sex in this movie. But but, but but yeah, I mean, he comes in. He's like, I've got these rules. He makes her spin around, which is basically what Roger Ailes does to Margot Robbie in Bombshell. Yes. And then this 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 idea of this uptight man, this uptight rich man who can give me everything. And I am the messy, sloppy, goofy girl who's going to break through and but, make him fall in love with me. And by the way... Not true at all, because the Von Trapp kids were like, that's not my dad at all. He was not, uh, <laughs> they were disturbed. They were like, that's not my dad. Um, uh, yeah, apparently the Von, they cried when they saw the movie because they loved their dad and thought he was a really nice guy. Yeah, uh, I mean, it's it's crazy. And, you know, Maria is available. Uh, the real Maria is available for this. So she is able to, like, help us color in what is right and wrong. And, you know, she was uh, kind of a real, you know, badass at the Abbey. You know, and they said, well, you know, was that true? She's like, I was worse. Um, well, yeah, I mean, because you were talking about the lack of energies in parts of this yeah. film. What I'm fascinated by is this opening song of Maria at the Abbey. Because the way the nuns, the, the undecided yeah. voter nuns are talking about who she is and what she stands for. It's, I don't know if they're describing the person we meet. When I'm with her, I'm confused, out of focus and bemused, and I never know exactly where I am. Unpredictable as weather. She's as flighty as a feather. She's a darling. She's a demon. She's a lamb. She'd outpester any pest, drive a hornet from its nest. She can throw a whirling dervish out of world. She is gentle, she is wild. She's a riddle, she's a child. She's a headache, she's an angel. She's a girl. Can I single out the word demon? <laughs> I mean, the, 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 the Maria that we meet yeah. is lovely and sensible. Yeah. It may be a little bit mouthy, a little bit, to a man who's very uptight. But she's really not much of what we hear there being described. She doesn't seem flighty. She's not a mess. She can make curtains. No, in, but she can make clothes out of curtains. She's very good with children. They obey her. She, when you meet her, she is literally dancing on a mountain, admitting later in the movie that she's singing in the mountain. So what we're seeing is not even a conceit of the movie musical. It's like, no, no. She was like, no, I was up there singing. I'm like, oh, okay. Yeah. Like and she's the like, the- I heard her singing. You can't sing in the Abbey. As we sing in the Abbey, we should say you can't <laughs> sing in the Abbey. But I mean, it's, it's the idea that basically like she's a free spirit. So a free spirit to them is a demon. I don't know. I don't give a shit because ultimately it doesn't even, we don't even need this element because all we really need is for her to go to the house. I don't understand why her and Christopher Plummer really connect besides that day. I mean, everything is so convenient. And I mean, again, that's the plotting of this movie. I, I, but I, when she can, goes on her rumspringer. 
Yes. Oh, wait, her nuns bring up. <laughs> I mean, but what's her rumspringa? I mean, what is it? I mean, this is like her, she gets to, she's working for a family nonstop. She has more time and fun with the kids than the dad. The dad's kind of like, oh, you made my kids sing? You are, you got, you're worth something. I mean, like, and then it's like, oh, now you dance. I don't know. I mean, there is some sadness. Like the real Maria, her story that we don't see much of the backstory here is that her mother died at three, her dad died a few years later, and she was raised first in foster homes and yeah. then by this really mean uncle who was apparently an atheist. And so she comes to religion much later. Like okay. she, she's kind of a new convert to religion. And the way they make it out in the movie is she just happened to like, like basically <laughs> walk by the Abbey. It's like she almost got left on the doorstep of the Abbey, but she did it with her own free will. <laughs> she yeah. left herself on the doorstep. Well, yeah, her whole thing was that she was a nature person and she loved nature so much that she thought if she loved what God created, she should probably just serve him for the rest of her life. So she shows up in this town and she says, take me to your strictest Abbey. <laughs> and they do. They take her to this Abbey. And she says that when she was kicked out temporarily and she met the kids, when one of the kids kissed her for the first time on the cheek, it was the first time anybody in her ever life had ever kissed her. Oh, wow. And so these kids meant the world to her. And she was always very open about saying, like, I never fell in love with the captain until way later. I fell in love with the kids. Oh, I like that. Then he married me, and then our love grew between us. That's a really beautiful way to look at relationships, you know, um, to find something adjacent to the person that you have to spend the rest of your life with and, and focus on that. Yeah, really. because kids, don't, they don't leave. Yeah. Um, I, I, will, I will say that, you know, Maria seems like she's had it, had it tough. Like, we already heard some things. You know, she's in the movie. Uh, she's uh, one of the women in Austrian garb who are in the scene where Julie Andrews walks through an archway during I Have Confidence, but was not invited to the premiere. They did not invite her to the premiere of the movie. That is about her life. I mean, what? I wonder, like, she, I mean, oh. she got invited to the Broadway show. Yeah. I mean, but again, this is a Broadway musical that was turned into a movie. So that's, you know, that's another part of it. But I mean, the real Maria, her, her friends would call her things like a tyrannical saint. No, she seems geez. a little difficult. I mean, they, so, it does, yeah. so Julie Andrews is right then that she's playing her in a, like a Valentine's Day card. I could see that. I mean, it's sort of sad. It's a little sad. Like they come to America with they really did give up a lot. You know, they gave up riches to be here. They had right. it was a hard choice. I think they they always say they had $4 when they arrived in America oh, wow. from this mansion, which by the way, do you know why they did have money in the first place? No. Uh it comes from the dead wife who never gets who never gets mentioned really in the film that okay. much. The captain married a woman who had a lot of money because her grandfather invented the torpedo. Oh, wow. Interesting. Yeah. So they're living in a house that's actually torpedo money. It's amazing that a movie that is three hours has so little backstory. Uh, and yet there is so much. And also Mary Poppins is 40 minutes shorter. And I feel like I know so much more about the characters. <laughs> and you get to learn about banking. But no, so the real Maria, what happens is she comes to the States with her family. They do singing. They open up this lodge in Vermont where they give music lessons. Christopher Plummer actually goes there when he's a kid, but just to ski. Right. And then in the 50s, she sells the rights to their story to a German company for $9,000. And the German company makes a film that's actually a pretty popular hit in Germany at the time. It's like Die von Trapp from you. Okay. Uh, but then it's the German company who sells the rights to that film to Broadway, who then sells it to Hollywood. So that 9000 was really all they made. Uh, from this whole story that then became the biggest financial hit of all time, they would say at the time. It's so crazy. I, um, it, you know, as you were just talking about something, I just had like a flashback to my childhood. And I remembered that I stayed in the Trap Family Lodge what? for a family vacation in in Vermont when I was you, a kid. You and did, did that too? Yeah. 
Uh, did you do that? God, I've never been to Vermont. I mean, so I would love to go. I, I just Googled it and it says a little Austria, a lot of Vermont. <laughs> Uh, it's situated on 2,500 acres in beautiful Stowe, Vermont. The Trapp Family Lodge is a unique mountain resort uh, featuring Austrian-inspired architecture and European-style accommodations. I mean, that was – I went, I mean, I remember that very – I'm like, oh, yeah, we went to the Trapp Family Lodge. I remember talking about the Trapp Family Lodge. I don't know why it why it's there, but uh, I, I, I remember being bored out of my fucking mind. <laughs> like I do. Like, I remember being a kid and being like so – Bored. Wow. How do you solve a problem like Paul Shear? <laughs> I'm a real demon. Because <laughs> I wanted to go to Ben and Jerry's yet again. Uh, Mom, can we go back to Ben and Jerry's and get more free ice cream samples? Sorry. I see why they took you there so that you could learn gratitude as these kids did. I mean, I, maybe I watched that movie when I was there. I, maybe I did watch it there. Yeah, I don't maybe know. it was like the time I went to The Shining Hotel and they just had The Shining on TV all the time. You see, I, I wouldn't put it past them. You could use, I think... Some passive-aggressive Maria lessons on how to be a good kid. Okay. I'd like to thank each and every one of you for the precious gift you left in my pocket earlier today. Um, what gift? It's meant to be a secret, Captain, between the children and me. Uh-huh. Then I suggest that you keep it and let us eat. Knowing how nervous I must have been, a stranger in a new household, knowing how important it was for me to feel accepted... It was so kind and thoughtful of you to make my first moments here so warm and happy and pleasant. <laughs> what is the matter, Marta? Nothing. I mean, I think you could use a little bit of that when you were a child. Wow, thank you. You know what? I really took that to heart. I really appreciate it. Uh, it's so you lovely of your family up. to take you on a nice vacation to see some greenery. <laughs> um, I was thinking about, though, Julie Andrews in general. And, you know, in this movie, her performance is amazing. Uh, I'm blown away constantly by how she looks in these environments. I don't know if there's something about how large the environments are and how innocent she looks in them. There's something like, there's something so wizened about Mary Poppins. And there's something so innocent about this character. So there is a difference in the character. She's not playing the same exact character. There's, there's an energy that is similar, but it is a different performance. And I'm thinking to myself, wow. So her, her sent, you know, her sec, her first film is Mary Poppins, right? Comes out in 1964. Her second film is Sound of Music. And she isn't really, I mean, she's in Torn Curtain, which is a Hitchcock film, not one of the biggest, but, you know, a good one. And I would say Victor Victoria's is a big, uh, a big one, but that's an 82. So you're going from, you know, essentially 65 to 82. And then you get into the 2000s where she starts to be in like Princess Diaries and uh, Shrek and Enchanted and stuff like that. But she really, you know, for being the biggest movie star and, and I guess, or so synonymous like i think that these two movies kind of torpedo her career to a certain extent or pigeonhole her in a way where she just i mean you know she's working but nothing on the that level yeah i mean it's hard it's like she got these two breakout roles that were tailor-made for her and i think she truly is incredible especially yes. in the first half of sound of music because she does radiate this goodness that is not cloying really you know no, I, she does I the best it. job i don't i yeah. don't know who can do this better 
No, I love the I am confident number, not so much for the song, but because of the way she's sort of moving her arms and mm. slapping the suitcase around herself and the kind of loose-limbed physical performance she puts in that. It's she, really fantastic. She's very much like a child. And I think, again, putting that performance next to Mary Poppins, I think she's trying very hard to at least differentiate them for herself. And I think that she does a great job because, you know, the other people that are up for this part, Audrey Hepburn, who I love, but I don't think she does this, this part. Um, Doris Day, same thing. Shirley Jones, interesting. I, I'd see Shirley Jones kind of do this. I think she did a little bit with the Partridge family. There's an element there, right? Uh, Anne Bancroft, I, I can't see that. Um, you know, that those yeah, are- there's a martyrdom element that I think Anne Bancroft would have to bring to this. And I can see how hard it would be to kind of find this role, but she does do something here. She makes the sacker, like- she, it's like, it's, she's giving you a spoonful of sugar to make the spoonful of sugar go down. If that makes sense. Like, like only she can make you have, like, if I saw this movie with somebody else, like I enjoyed watching it. I don't think it's good. Is that, is that That's what I'm wrestling with. Right. It's like, I'm like, I would totally engage in this entire movie, but I'm like, not a good movie. Uh, but yet that she makes it like really very palatable. Well, yeah, and I think there must it must have hurt her to be cast in these two roles that, you know, are basically known for being pretty unsexy at a time when oh, the industry yeah. is shifting dramatically. You know, where you Hollywood You can never wa- put her in a movie and be like, you're the sex... You, you can't. Yeah. It's just not... It's not... Um... Yeah, like where Hollywood wants to go after this, like where they want to rank, wrangle the 60s back to make the yeah. films that they consider cool... She doesn't fit in that world. Like, she becomes the face of conservative 60s that we don't want to be. And then she gets trapped there, you know, which I think if it weren't for the fact that she's the only person in the cast who made more money off, off of the film after it got released, I'd feel bad for her. Right. But she's the only one who actually made more money off of it. The vest, the rest of the Von Trapps kind of made nothing. Okay. But. She deserves Yeah, it. I mean, I, you're right. I think it does also speak to something about women getting locked into boxes. And she got, she was so good at this box that she got trapped here. But by the way, and, it was her first two performances she wasn't even she didn't even have the wherewithal to understand how that box could trap her you know what i'm saying like when you're first starting out like that like oh my god yeah like and these are amazing opportunities but you're right like i think that women have a hard time being so virginal and then being seen as anything but that like and i think that's it's a really maybe you know that's that's just yeah nothing has changed i think that that's a hard sell for people sometimes it's true and it's a shame because what she really brings to maria is this effortlessness you know she makes this look easy i mean she's Mm -hmm. up there on the hillside she's swinging her arms around she's singing her heart out on one of the few days it was clear enough to actually take that shot because apparently the whole time they tried to make this movie it was raining and grim and they needed this natural scenery for the times they were in austria they're like we're here in these actual alps and it was just grim the whole time by the way it's the sun would come out for five minutes and they'd run out and try to take the shot the cinematography on this movie is stunning i mean when you see the mountains and you like when they're the kids are playing that game of ball with the baroness you know the i'm five to four to three to two one five you know like that even that the the opening shot the running away at the end it's all just gorgeous even the final act where they're singing the song you know um uh you know it's like that kind of like under like not underground but like that kind of cave performance space like it's just the whole movie is breathtaking like if you saw it on a screen i think it would even be i mean i'm sure many people have it must be even more like whoa like it just it's 
it's IMAX without being IMAX. Yeah, and I do love that slow build. You know, mm-hmm. one of the last times I saw this film was they showed it at the Chinese for TCM Festival. Mm-hmm. And so it was in that gigantic theater. Everybody oh, was that. there. All the, all the cast was there. I remember at the after party, I saw some of the Devon Trop singers drunk in an elevator. And Wait, I was they're so still happy. Alive? Yeah. Oh, wow. not, the, not the biological ones, but the oh. actors. The, oh, a bunch okay, of the got sis- it, yeah. A bunch of the sisters were there. One of them had her shoes off and they'd all been drinking champagne. And I felt so happy to be in that elevator with them. I love that. But when you see it big in that giant theater, because it is an IMAX actually, the Chinese now. Mm-hmm. You get a sense of how they really build this opening shot, this sense of scale. It's it's quiet. You know, here's the thing mm-hmm. called the sound of music. And it builds from like silence to wind to little oh, bits I of birds. It. And you get that sense of she's, she's singing about how nature is a song for her. And you get that drama to the release of it. And she's spinning around up on that hill. And apparently that helicopter shot they're using, the fans just kept knocking her over because it was so strong. And they'd zoom in on Julie. They'd be like, Julie, you're alone on the hill. We can't see anything else but you, Julie. Spin around on that hill. And she'd spin and they'd zoom in and the helicopter air would just knock her to her feet flat. She'd have to get up, take the mud off, do it again. And she just kept doing it. She was just like, great. And she put that Maria energy there. She was just like, this is what we're doing and this is what we're doing. I mean – it's one of the best opening shots of anything. It's it's so iconic. And again, that's what we're talking about with this film. It's like you can't deny that this movie is beautifully directed. Like yeah. they, everything everything works for this movie. And Robert Wise, who's the director of this, is – I mean I think you know, obviously gets a lot of credit for it. And uh, you know, we talked about – you know, how he was this amazing editor, did so many things, obviously Citizen Kane, like you said. Um, but then when he actually got to start directing, he has a pretty interesting, you know, lineup of films, you know, from the day the earth stood still. Uh, he obviously did uh, West Side Story, which we loved. We talked about that. And he did West Side Story before this. And West Side Story, you know, is so interesting because that movie is the opposite of this in many ways. It's kind of pushing boundaries. It is what we're talking about, that idea of like, what the sixties is doing like a cooler, you know, uh, you know, a little bit, I mean, for a, a big musical, it, you know, um, it's, it's really, it's interesting that he could make both. And, uh, you know, of course he made, um, you know, two of my favorite movies, uh, Star Trek, the motion picture, uh, and the stupids. Tom oh, I mean, between these musicals and Star Trek, you could almost say he is directly responsible for big budget spectacle sci-fi franchise, yeah. but, I mean, he was very worried that that opening shot was ripping off West Side Story too much. This idea of like, look at this giant landscape. We're getting closer, closer, yeah, but, closer, closer. Here are our leads. But by the way, you can do that when you are the guy who did it. Like, I like, but that's what it made me think of that that opening shot of New York City. It's like, and you're seeing the base, you're hearing the baseball hit, and you're seeing the stadium. It's a, I think it's a great way to kind of bring you in to a world. I think, especially something like a musical, because you have to. Musicals are big. Right. And I think musicals are meant for the stage. I think that musicals make a very hard transition into film because they are they're magical. Like their musicals are magical. I love a musical. I think you can accept a musical on stage so much more than you can in a film. Like I dread the day that we're going to see the Hamilton movie um, because there is something that is bulletproof about seeing something on stage. You're watching you're watching athletes. I mean, to a certain extent, you know, you're singing and dancing and. And you you have a suspension of disbelief, and I don't think that movies often carry. You know, it's hard. I think it's a hard thing to pull off. Obviously, this year we saw how hard it is to pull off. Cats, one of the longest-running shows on Broadway, selling out all the time. It doesn't work. It does not work. I've you seen Cats three times. I may uh, see it four. Yes, but you're watching it at the Rowdy screen. <laughs> but, I mean, but, like, but you know, it's it's hard to translate 
what is kind of goofy. I mean, it, it's goofy. It's shit's goofy. It's fine. Well, I think so much of it has to do almost less with the actual film and more with is the audience in a mood to be receptive? Mm. You know, like did the audience in 1965 want to escape from things like JFK being assassinated, what is happening to our world, everything's in chaos, Vietnam is is about to really start killing our sons and our brothers and our dads. Like, why don't we just run to the Alps again where everything seemed calm and nice? Right. Well, yeah. I mean, sort of like Hamilton is coming, it be, is, be, became really popular in a time of what's happening to politics. What does America stand for? Who do we want to be? You know, it rises out of the city of optimism, I feel like, mm-hmm. in the Obama administration. And now it means something totally different. Right. But it means something. But, I mean, I I would argue that musicals are harder to accept when they're not animated. That's what I would say, like, now, too. I think that, that we're in the age of that now. We're in the, you know, occasionally now we're seeing live-action musicals but i think like right now like the idea that people still want to be entertained like i'll say the word that you don't like frozen um you know is as influential i think as something like this like people want it's not that people are rejecting musicals it's like i think it's hard to animated films allow a musical to still retain this ability to be unrealistic or something like that but once you have to have an audience willing to say i give in but I think that there people are more willing. Like that's I think I think adults will go see like Frozen. I think I don't think that audiences are not ready to hit musicals. I think that we are now trained a little bit to be more cynical. So you need to watch a musical that is going to be something like Sing Street, uh, which I thought was really great, um, or something. And not that not to say that Sing Street is not is like cynical, but it's like just something is like pushing the boundaries a little bit. And we have to like kind of hide our musicals now. I don't think you can make a big broad musical. Uh, the, that really works. I mean, even the fan of the opera that came out, like Chicago is probably the last one that I can really remember that was like, that really was cool. But they also did so much visually cool stuff with it. I don't know. It's I'm wrestling with this thought and I probably haven't had it all thought out, but it there is something about how we want to accept a musical. It has to, I think it has to, it can't be based in reality or something. Or it has to be based in this reality that we want to be in. Right. Like, because to me, I see Sound of Musical as connecting with audiences who are yearning for that innocence, like yearning mm. to jump into Maria's innocence, yearning to jump into Liesel's innocence, right. the, the young girl, and rejecting the modern. You know, even the movie itself is a movie that rejects the modern. It's made very old-fashioned. It's an old-fashioned style of thing. It's it, it's about yearning for the time when you could live in the hills and sew your own clothes and war hadn't happened yet. Right. And you didn't know how bad things were going to get. And so it's like you're you're time traveling back to this place you want to be. And that's why I love even the stories of them trying to shoot it on location in Austria because, you know, the locals were like, well, you should know something. You know, you really shouldn't bring the Nazi stuff into this movie because Austria didn't have any Nazi sympathizers. Yeah. We were totally fine. We didn't have – you don't put, don't put up any flags. There were no Nazi sympathizers here. To which Robert Wise was like, oh, that's fine. We don't have to put up Nazi flags. Uh, we can just use the actual newsreel footage of the Nazi sympathizers that you had going yeah, on basically, here. Yeah, basically saying, come into our country. We welcome you. Yeah. Yeah. But, but you know, this is 35 years later and people are trying to rewrite history. 25. Like, well, 30, yeah, all right. Yeah, Between I mean, the I mean, two. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, but by the way, that's close. 20, yeah. yeah. It's close enough that people were still alive. And that the local extras didn't want to be the Nazis, but that they, they were trying to 
they wanted this movie to represent a history that didn't even really happen. I mean, when they released Sound of Music in Germany, one of the people at the German studio tried to make the executive decision of just chopping off everything after the wedding, like getting rid of all the Nazi <laughs> stuff. So it just ends on the happy ending That's of cute. Maria marrying the captain. I kind of could be like, we did it. I think it's kind of fine that way. I mean, they don't miss that much. Uh, I mean, you miss that great moment with Rolf. Well, um, if I can be honest, yeah, I think to me, this movie does divide very much into pre-wedding and post-wedding. Mm-hmm. And post-wedding, Maria sucks. Post-wedding is just like plot. It just becomes like from a movie with no plot to like plot that is so kind of small. It's just like we're running to this. Like the second act uh, really slows down in, in an aggressive way, I feel like. Or oh, the yeah. post-wedding, I guess you should say. Yeah. I mean, Maria's just kind of boring when yeah, she, she gets married. Maria's like, I'm crazy and I swim and I sing and I do things. Yeah. And I mean, here's like the one of the first conversations she has with Charmaine after they get married. And they both just sound so... So tired and like they're play acting at what women are supposed to sound like. Mother, hmm? that sounds so nice. I like calling you mother. I like hearing it. You love father very much. I can tell you do. Very much. Mother, what do you do when you think you love someone? I mean, when you stop loving someone or when he stops loving you. You cry a little. And then you wait for the sun to come out. It always does. There's so many things I think I should know, but I don't. I really don't. How can you? Sometimes I feel the world is coming to an end. And then you feel it's just beginning? Yes. (laughs) It was that way with me, Liesl. And for you, it will be just as wonderful, I promise. I mean, my God, she's talking like the queen now. She's like, I've been in love. I've been on our honeymoon for one month. I am now this divine figure of perfect. Mm-hmm. Can you imagine her boning on the honeymoon? Do you think they bone? No, I mean, there's the nothing sexual kids, between seven the Seven yeah. kids. Can you picture any sort of hot-bloodedness between them? No, it doesn't feel. I mean, that's definitely not what you're getting in this. I mean, it's, uh, and I mean, the dance number is probably the, the best sequence in that. Um, I want to talk about the Baroness though too. Like talking about like I did feel like there was a little bit of chemistry between uh, the Baroness and uh, Captain Von. Yeah, Trapp. I mean, let's listen to the Baroness and Captain Von Trapp because they have a conversational style that is nothing like what we ever see when it comes to Maria talking to anybody, especially when she's married. Oh, I do like it here, Georg. It's so lovely and peaceful. How can you leave it as often as you do? Oh, pretending to be madly active, I suppose. Activity suggests a life. Filled with purpose. Could it be running away from memories? Mm-hmm. Or perhaps just searching for a reason to stay. Oh, I hope that's why you've been coming to Vienna so often. Or were there other distractions there? Oh, I'd hardly call you a mere distraction, darling. <laughs> <laughs> well, what would you call me, Georg? Mm. Lovely. Charming, witty, graceful, the perfect hostess. And uh, you're going to hate me for this. In a way, my saviour. Oh, how unromantic. Well, I would be an ungrateful wretch if I didn't tell you at least once that it was you who brought some meaning back into my life. Oh, I, I am amusing, I suppose. And I do have the finest couturier in Vienna. And the most glittering circle of friends. And I do give some rather gay parties. Oh, yes. But take all that away and you you have just wealthy, unattached little me searching just like you. <laughs>
I mean, I love her. She's play acting a bit. She's being arch and a little bit self-consciously phony yeah. on purpose as part of the gag. But he is alive with her. Like the I captain is totally looking at her. Agree. She is a real person. He makes her feel a spark. They have this chemistry that I don't think I really ever. To me, that's. I like Sound of Music better than you do, but to me, that's the biggest flaw of this, is I'd never buy any chemistry between him and Maria, and I never buy the love, and I don't like her when she gets married. I Look, I mean, and I think there's a part of it, too, which is like, if I grew up with this movie, I think it would just be, you know, beloved, the same way that you feel about Goonies when you hey. slammed it the other day uh, so callously, um, you know, but it's sort of like, it's how you, what you grew up with, you know, Um but I, yeah, there is something about the Baroness I love. Uh, I love the way that that performance goes. I think that every one of these characters is served by underwritten parts, and it's and it's unfortunately going back to my thing about Broadway. You can have an underwritten part because it's like it's just getting to the next song. But in a movie, you have to do more than getting to the next song. You have to you have to put stakes and consequences there, and and that's what I think I'm really reacting to on some level. And that's what I think I was trying to get to with my point about, you know, what is it about? Like, I think that you can have lower stakes in an animated film, even though now I think we are raising the bar on that. Um, but it's sort of like, this seems so transparent. It's like, let's get to the next number because you know what? The next number will forget, will make you forget that there's no good plot here. And it does. It truly does because every single song is great. Look, Lonely Goat Herder. Yeah. I like it. I'm into it. I love what big tits the puppets have. <laughs> I mean, come on. Is that a shirt, Amy? Should we put that on uh, our shirt? <laughs> uh, I mean, those are some buxom puppets, man. They're like, hey. But I mean, literally, you look at this. It, it, it like you said, it's it's bangers. It's like so. It like I, I think, but that's why. To me, it seems like she's like, well, all right, you came back. I'm out. Like it's so. It's like it's like uh, tag team wrestling. It's like mm, okay. Mm-hmm. I mean, I, I guess I just get creeped out that like. He's had this whole life. He's had his seven kids. And so he decides that he can't marry anybody like with a life too, the way the Baroness yeah. has. He has to marry a virgin. It's a little weird. And then he kisses her just on the forehead most of the time. It's not a sexual movie. It's not a sexual movie. There's nothing. I mean, that's, that's the, yeah. I mean, it really All is. All of those kids are evidence that it is, is sexual. Well, with the Sex other wife. Happened. With the other wife. He's just doing it all the time. He's coming back from that naval assignment. Knock it up. Set it back. And um, by the way, these kids aged while they shot this movie. Um, like, uh, they grew a lot. Um, Nicholas Hammond, he, <laughs> he grew six inches. They had to utilize heel lifts and camera tricks to keep all their heights steady. Uh, during the film, which is kind of hilarious. Yeah, to that me. poor Nicholas had a hard time because he also has naturally brown hair, and they decided impulsively to bleach his hair so he could be oh. a blonde von Trapp. And he had these skin blisters. It was Ooh. yeah, poor little dude. So wait, the idea was that there were um, they added four kids, right? There was never seven kids. There were as many as ten. He but had... who was in the von Trapp family singers? Well, okay. I thought so they brought in four. The kids were older okay, got when it. all of this happened. Basically, they, they bumped everything up a decade. He met Maria, the real Maria, in the 20s. In the late yeah. 20s, he was already a widower with seven kids. He had already served in the Navy during World War One. He actually shot down, I think, something like, I think, 13 uh, British ships when he was uh, in the German World War I uh, submarine gang. Oh, wow. Um, he has the seven kids. His wife dies. He marries Maria in the 20s. And they have three more kids before they leave uh, for America. And I think they have a fourth one maybe right when they get here. Okay. Or they, maybe they have the but, I mean, these are all the kids arrive. that were not singing Nazi, not Nazis tunes. I mean, these are not – like, they've yeah. that kid's coming alive in America. He's not singing Nazi tunes. Yeah. But I think, like, some of their kids were in their late 20s by the time they left. Okay. 
And so they basically erased them for the film. And they, okay, started, they started over with the younger ones. Okay. And then they gave everybody new names. <laughs> Who doesn't love a classic chocolate chip cookie? Famous Amos has been making them since the 70s, 1975 to be exact. With semi-sweet chocolate chips and a satisfying crunch, it's everything classic in one bite-sized cookie. And fans couldn't get enough. That's right. You'll find our original recipe, the one you know and love, in every bag of Famous Amos original chocolate chip cookies. Find Famous Amos anywhere you buy your favorite snacks. Life is a highway, and on it there will be many chicken sandwiches. But there's only one crispy. so go ahead and hit the turn signal if you know about this juicy gem of a detour. All right, so Amy, you know, we've talked a lot about the music, and I think, you know, Rodgers and Hammerstein is synonymous with a movie musical. I think it's synonymous with musicals. And I would love to get a little bit more insight on the business of writing these songs and being a part of these songs. And we actually have a very special guest this week. Yes, let's talk to somebody who understands the music in this musical better than anybody else can, both as a descendant, and as a composer himself. His name is Adam Gettle. He is the grandson of Richard Rodgers, who wrote the music for this, and he is also known for winning two Tony Awards for his own musical, The Light in the Piazza. Adam, welcome to Unschooled. So, Adam, I mean, one thing that I'm so fascinated by in talking to you is not only did you grow up in this musical household, but that you grew up and you became a two-time Tony Award winner yourself, who I heard you actually have the family piano that you get to play on and compose. I do. It's daunting, but it's wonderful. And uh, it makes me wonder at the idea that he made all these wonderful things on the same instrument. And uh, it's a privilege to have it in the house. So many profiles of you compare you and your work to Stephen Sondheim, I think, paramount among everybody. But the New York Times once said something, and I was wondering how you feel about it. They said, in the supple long lines of your gorgeous melodies, it's Rogers you hear on top. And even more surprisingly, Oscar Hammerstein you hear in the word. I, I'm very honored by that. I, I, um, you know, I began like any sane person, rejecting everything that had come before me. And uh, the older I've gotten, and the more I've written, the more I um, respect uh, what uh, my grandfather did. Because of Sondheim, I knew from a very early age that trying to be that virtuosic, word a wordsmith was a really low percentage shot. I try to stick with what people want and try to find vowels that can be sung um, healthily and compellingly, you know, that match those feelings. Uh, the, the intricacies and brilliance of what uh, Steve Sondheim does, I always knew that was uh, probably not something that I should spend my time trying to match or, God knows, uh, surpass. So, yeah, I really am uh, very glad to hear someone thinks I remind him of Oscar because he had a he was a real humanist, but also a fabulous technician in the most subtle way. I mean, his words are so efficient as far as storytelling and so singable, technically singable. You've also said, and I'd love to know more about this, that part of what you think the secret to your grandfather's success was that he was in the right place at the right time. That's not the secret to his, his genius and, and his gift and, and its humanity, but it, it may be the secret to the enormous uh, outsized cultural effect that his work 
had, especially the work he did with Hammerstein. Yes, I mean, coming out of World War II, people had been through a lot, and suddenly America had emerged as this place that <clears throat> had a kind of moral authority, something we obviously have lost, but that enabled um, Rogers and Hammerstein to address certain topics without the kind of censorious uh, treatment that things that address social issues today are going to be subject to. I mean, that's interesting. So you think like in, a, in, in something like The Sound of Music, Rogers felt a real need to also use that to bring up social issues he cared about? Well, Sound of Music is probably sliding more to the commercial idea side of the continuum. And, and I, again, don't mean to discount it because it's, it's quite brilliant. I was looking at uh, the songs that were written for the stage production and what was cut for the movie and what was written for the movie. And even that process makes a lot of sense to me as someone who, you know, tells stories and, and works with uh, storytelling through song. Well, I'd love to talk about that more because one of the songs that gets cut I find fascinating, which is the song No Way to Stop It. I mean, could you tell people what uh -huh. that song is or what it's about? There are two kinds of songs that were cut. One I think of as milieu or ambient songs, songs that for a stage production give us a sense of where we are. And then there is a very romantic song, which doesn't really take us anywhere or tell us anything new, which is an ordinary couple, but it's quite lavish and quite lyrical. When you think about the form uh, of film, the where we are part is handily taken care of by what the resources that film prov provides. This is a little bit tougher on stage, and sometimes songs need to help us out with that. It's my minor off-the-cuff theory about <clears throat> No Way to Stop It and... Um, remind me that the other one was cut. Is, how can love uh, survive, too? I, mean, he, survive. Right. I take so, it personally because I love the Baroness, and they cut two of the Baroness songs for the movie. I know, and I get it, and I think a really good director who understands the complexity of the piece might invest a little bit more in our dear Baroness. I mean, she kind of gets short shrift, generally speaking. I mean, she's, she's meant to because she's not Maria, but she represents a different way of life, um, Everything is breaking open. Everything is new. Uh, and people don't even fall in love in the same way. It's not a prescribed thing. In fact, culture was turning toward proscribing certain kinds of arranged things. And uh, so you can sort of see why she's been abridged. That's true, but like that No Way to Stop It song, I think about it a lot. You know, that's the one where the Baroness and Max are trying to tell the captain, like, just play along with the Nazis. Just say yes to them. Keep your mouth shut. You know, do what you have to do to, to survive. And it has this lyric that I yeah. love because it feels so relevant today. It, she says, and I can't it, sing it because my voice is gone, but she says, a crazy planet full of crazy people is somersaulting all around the sky. And every time it turns another somersault, another day goes by and there's no way to stop it. And it's this, this right. political song it, in the middle of it. Right, yes. And it, it, it has been and ever will be ever thus or whatever. It's It's that kind of a thing. I think one of the things that, limits the song's reach is the extremely Bavarian sort of um, kind of oompa-ness of it. Uh, I think the milieu musically is maybe a bit of a red herring. I mean, steering people in a slightly different direction. They're not um, perhaps even in a, a commercial movie. Um, and Sound of Music, you know, Let's Make No Mistake, was, was planned from the beginning to be a major 
uh, release in a major commercial movie. I mean, whole movie theaters are sort of redone for it. There were intermissions. And I, I guess no way to stop it uh, in the context of something that needs to barrel right along narratively. Um, maybe felt like one, like a little too layered, I guess, you know, because when you listen to the music, it's got a very blithe, innocent quality, sort of Bavarian, and then you listen to the lyrics, as you point out, and, and uh, there's a lot more going on there. It's about complacency, it's, it's about survival in a way that a certain set of people have survived and probably always will survive for a long time. You know, just let it be what it is, and don't make a fuss, and, and uh, you'll still be a member of the ruling class. I'm, I'm sounding extremely 2020. But. <laughs> Right now, you're working on a, a musical adaptation of uh, Wine and Roses, right? Days of Wine and Roses. Days, yes. Um, talk to me about your process going into that. Like, you know, like, I just want to hear how you how you look at the work and, and how you decide what you want to bring to it and what you want to bring out of it when you're sitting down with a project like this. What I trust in, maybe to my detriment, is does it matter to me? Would right. If I handle this right, if I do it right, would I want to see this? Would I be moved by it? Um, it is primarily and most of all a love story. And it's a love story with uh, an impossible obstacle, a, a very, very difficult obstacle. And all good love stories have to have one of those. And I really like love stories. I feel like music or at least some music that I can make is well suited to them. Uh, and so for that reason, to begin with, I was drawn to it. On a, secondarily, I have had my own problems with substances. It's been many years, but it wasn't a great time in my life. And uh, I often think that when all of a sudden done, I kind of got into this because um, it's a way to examine myself and that I'll have an easier time and a less frightened time dying because I really looked at some stuff that, right. that I did, that I thought, that I felt, um, and looked at it you know, over many thousands of hours because that's how long it takes to write one of these stupid things. It's also like you're constantly learning, right? Because, I, you know, as a writer myself, you know, you I know that like the first draft or what you think is you're trying to get out of it morphs as you're, you're working with it. And, you know, do you, uh, are you always surprised by where you've come from or do you feel like you, you knew what you wanted and then you kind of just, are you one of those writers that, you know, you see it right from the beginning? <laughs> I think it's sort of bipartite, the, 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 and the both partites are necessary. Uh, the signature, which is what I would call your emotional kind of almost um, molecular reaction to uh, a story, uh, to what it's what you bring to it organically. And as I said, uh, one of the main reasons for doing a story um, is one part, and then the other is always there, which is you are so far inside of it emotionally and therefore narratively that you need a director, you need a director's perspective once you've got a first draft and ultimately you need a producer's perspective. Um, you know, it is a pretty efficient system. When directors get in too early, not good. When producers get in too early, not good. We, yeah. we want them to maintain their perspective uh, because that's what they bring. That's what's really valuable. But by the time you're done creating a narrative, when you're that far inside, you need a director to uh, help you understand uh, that this isn't being clearly told. You're way too inside of this. Let's make sure we move along here. This is being given short shrift. Think about what the audience needs to understand here. 
And then there are other elements that producers bring. And I'm not relegating them to sort of second-class citizens. They're ever, every bit as important as sure. the writers, but it's about sequence of of points of view. I imagine when you were young, you know, to grow up so steeped in music yourself from such a young age, I'm just trying to picture what your house was like, what your family life was like. Was it a house where everybody well, was always humming like, and singing? It's like the Von Trapp household, but before Maria. Because <laughs> My, because my mom was, um, by the time I sort of became cognizant and interested in music, I started as a boy soprano soloist, and so I was always listening to opera and stuff. She wouldn't have music in the house. There was no music allowed because she was writing books and she couldn't concentrate because if there was music on, she was just thinking about music. And so it was, it was a strangely um, sort of monastic is the word. And uh, we, there was music when we were focusing on it, but during the day, if I had to learn a score, it was all about headphones. So it's a kind of funny paradox. <laughs> I mean, does that mean, are you able to hear your grandfather's personality in any of his songs? Is, are there songs that you listen to them and you're like, yes, that that is so much part of who he was? Um, no. I, what I hear is someone who had a lot of love and it came through. He, there's pain and expansive of uh, yearning uh and i really i mean i he, he died when i was 15 so i did get to know him a bit and he was perfectly he was very affectionate sometimes quite funny um i didn't see any you know remotely demonic behavior uh, <laughs> but did, can i uh apply or or um, create any tethers between who he was and, and what i hear i just hear a brilliant writer with perfect counterpoint and a fabulous dramatic sense. Um, even um, an ordinary couple is just, it just grows and grows. And uh, there are so many lovely, uh, unexpected harmonic bonuses. Uh, you know, what a fabulous writer. Have you ever met any of the Von Trapps yourself? Well, I've become friends with Gardner Von Trapp, who's a fabulous young man, um, a great musician and singer, cellist. And also a neuroscientist. I mean, he's just brilliant. Wow. They're, they're, it's a quite an interesting family. Um, and uh, uh, and, uh, and Gardner lives in Vienna now, um, of all wow. places. And we're going to go visit him in a little while. He's a very close friend of my girlfriend's. And so it's a funny connection there. Well, what also fascinates me is, you know, over here, we've been covering the AFI list, talking about what's on it, talking about what we want on it. And you've worked on two yeah. projects that fall into one category on each list. You did To Kill a Mockingbird, the stage production that was just done by Sorkin, which I love the idea of you writing music for that. I'd love to hear about that. Uh, well, it was a, it was a real... Um, I didn't want to do it because I am not capable of doing, like, kind of more thing, more than one thing at once, and I didn't want to get too sidetracked from the projects that I'm writing, but or the main project at any one time. But... Um, I ended up saying yes because I thought, well, wait a second, it's Aaron Sorkin and this Broadway, and you know, I haven't been on Broadway in years and years, and maybe I should let people know I still exist. And so I'm so grateful right. that I that I caved, um, and 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 for another reason too, because I am very private about the work because um, I think it all sucks at first, and so I'm even my studio here in Vermont is is a good 200 feet away from um, the house. Like I don't want anyone hearing me. I love that. Um, and uh, and but. With Mockingbird, I, I kind of, because of time, I, uh, I had to write it in the room, you know, in the room with Jeff Daniels, in the room with Julia King and Bulger, in oh, the room wow. with Bart Shear and, and Scott Rudin, and occasionally Barry Diller. It was like, I'm writing in front of these people. This is very strange. But it's a, it, I, it was a good lesson for me. It was like, yeah, 
you know, it's not that big a deal. This is not brains. You know, you're not saving lives here. Just do the best you can. See what they like best. Use that. Well, the movie that everybody talks about here that we want to be on the next AFI list when they ever updo it, which I know you know intimately, and I've never gotten to hear your work on it, of course, is you wrote songs for the Princess Bride musical. Oh, wow. Yeah, yeah. That was a, that was a tough one. That was a, a very tough passage in, 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 you know, in my career. Um, and uh, that was a full score. It was all the musicals there. Um, and um, and I, I never sold it for parts. It's still there. I'm... I'm uh, sort of provisionally or tentatively working on a story that is invented, you know, from whole cloth with Teresa Rebeck and Michael Corey uh, using that score. Uh, but um, it's tough. You know, this business uh, can be a heartbreaker. But my mother wrote a full score for Member of the Wedding, Carson McCullers, and uh, everything was going full speed. And then suddenly for no um reason that she could have forecast the rights fell through and this whole beautiful piece just sat there um and it really crushed her uh as a writer as a, as a composer to the theater she just because it is difficult there are there are lots of moving parts and um lots of personalities and lots of egos and and i'm not i'm not uh, I'm leaving my own ego out of that uh so it's it's a complex thing that you're making but when the machine is uh, riveted together um, carefully. Uh, <clears throat> I think it can stand the test of time, uh, and that's why I do it. I, you know, I look at the great opera composers. I look at the work that Frank Lesser and my grandfather and um, you know Lerner and Lowe and Jerome Kern and Sondheim have done. I think you know a lot of these things are going to be around for for hundreds of years, the way even Monteverdi is, and that's you know that's what I aspire to. You know, making a really good watch. Well, thank you so much for <laughs> spending time with us and chatting with us. Uh, that was great. Yeah, well, thank you both. It was a real pleasure. And have a great time with the rest of it all. Yeah, thanks. Thank you so much. By the way, we didn't talk to Adam about this, but I think when you read about the history of the lyrics that Hammerstein wrote, you know, Hammerstein being almost relentlessly cheerful, like his own son said that Hammerstein was so determined to stay happy and positive all the time that if he saw a blind person coming, he would cross the street just so he wouldn't get near them and get sad. Wow. That's yeah. darker than anything that you've said to me ever. Amy. <laughs> but uh, you, he has uh, shared some of his um, evolutions in the lyrics. And one of the most famous one is he wanted the, the film to start with the line, the hillside is sweet. So it'd be the hillside is sweet. With the sound of music. And he progressed through that to get to The Hills Are Alive. I I love it. I love it. Look, you have to get, you know, sometimes you have to cut through uh, some uh, tall trees to see the forest, right? I don't know. Well, that was actually really fascinating to hear. And again, you know, I'm wrestling with this movie. And I think what you said to me in the beginning is really interesting. Like, people rejected this movie. This movie was rejected by critics. People are losing their jobs over it. People are, you know, this is America's choice it's not necessarily Hollywood's choice, if that makes sense, right? That's, why, that's what I'm kind of getting from looking at some of the reviews and stuff. It's just like, wow, this, people are really tore this movie apart. Yeah, like when they took this movie out for previews, it got back almost exclusively five stars. You know, everybody loved it. They went nuts. When it comes to the critics, I mean, it was so polarizing. I find it fascinating. Um, it comes out in this kind of context where, you know, the year before um, – these writers that we've talked about mm -hmm. before, Robert Benton and David Newman, had written this piece called 
the new sentimentality for Esquire that was basically a cry for us to do something different than what we are doing now. And what they say in it, you know, they say that they're describing what they don't like about the present. Mm. And they say the old concept of selling out, which used to drive good men crazy, causing them to cry in their beer and bemoan their wasted talent, writing ad copy, for instance, has disappeared. Now we glory in what pros we are, and a man loves himself for writing the best jingle on the market. Which I love that because I feel like we always make that complaint now yeah. about people. And, and in fact, everything they say makes it seem like 1964, 1965 is today. You know, they say here, self-indulgence used to be a bad idea. And anybody who was labeled with the term was wasting himself. Now it is a virtue. It's basically self-care. Um, we still get nostalgic, but we no longer get that dreamy feeling about old values such as togetherness or sitting by an open fire. We now get nostalgic about old trivia, the movies we saw when we were in high school, mm. the lies we told, the girl who jilted us. And so into this climate, describing the vacuum that they have, here comes Sound of Music, and oh my God, it's so polarizing. Like Judith Chris from the New York Herald Tribune, her headline on her review was, if you have diabetes, stay away from this movie. And she wow. called it, quote, the sound of marshmallows, and she warned audiences that calorie counters, diabetics, and grown-ups from 8 to 80 had best beware. There's nothing like a supersized screen to convert seven darling little kids in no time at all to the to what W.C. Fields indicated little kids are, which is pure loathsome. Wow. Yeah, she went hard on the kids. And this review, this really harsh pan, kind of made Judith Crystal low-key critical superstar. It really elevated her profile. But then a lot of critics lost their job. The critic at The Guardian lost his job because he panned it. Joan Didion stopped writing movie reviews. She Mm -hmm. was writing movie reviews for Elle, and she panned this movie and stopped. And the most famous of all was a writer who was writing for McCall's at the time. Uh, she was a film critic over there. Her name was Pauline Kael. She oh, panned Sound course, of Music. Of course, yes. And said that this pan of Sound of Music is why they didn't renew her contract. And here's what she wow. wrote. She said that the Sound of Music is, quote, probably going to be the single most repressive influence on artistic freedom in movies for the next few years. The success of a movie like The Sound of Music makes it even more difficult for anyone to try to do anything worth doing, anything relevant to the modern world, anything inventive or expressive. Whom could, it, whom could it offend? Only those of us who, despite the fact that we may respond, loathe being manipulated in this way and are aware of how self-indulgent and cheap and ready-made are the responses we are made to feel. So she's saying even if you love this movie, right. you should feel grossed out by how manipulated this movie is making your emotions. Then she says that the sound of music is what she calls, quote, the big lie, the sugar-coated lie that people seem to want to eat. This is the attitude that makes a critic feel that maybe it's all hopeless. Why not just send the director, Robert Wise, a wire, quote, you win, I give up. Why am I so angry about these movies? Because the shoddy falseness of The Singing Nun, which also came out at the same time, mm-hmm. so she's reviewing them together, and luxuriant falseness of The Sound of Music are part of the sentimental American tone that makes honest work almost impossible. It is not only that people who accept this kind of movie tend to resent work, which says that this is not the best of all possible worlds, but that people who are gifted give up the effort to say anything. They attune themselves to the sound of money. Well, have times have changed. No, nah. oh my God. I could see myself writing this exact Of review. course, I, I know, I know. feeling these exact feelings. Yeah. And I feel like I, when I see myself get frustrated at movies that I can't even articulate why I hate them so much, I wish I could articulate them like this. Like, I might cry and I hate myself for crying. And I might smile and laugh and I might hate myself for that. Because it does make you feel hopeless. 
if if this is the sort of thing that gets rewarded. And, you know, the irony of it is Pauline Kael gets fired from McCall's. She gets hired at The New Yorker. And the very first movie she reviews for The New Yorker is a movie that Robert Benton and David Newman wrote, Bonnie and Clyde. And there thus, she makes her stance for where Hollywood needs to go. And, I mean, you know, it, it's an interesting movie. We've said it a couple times about this. And I think she said it really well, which is this should be your this should be a movie that you hate. But because you grew up in the wrong time, you got it. Uh, you got it in a different way. It came in, you know, cause it is, it's like, let's get the guy who directed West Side Story and the girl who played Mary Poppins and we're going to make this movie and it's going to make a million bucks and it's based on the thing and we're going to whitewash it. Da, 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 da. And it's sort of, uh, it's amazing to be able to see it in that moment because I think this movie does do a lot of magic to hide all of that, you know, and that, and that's, I think what is, is the most impressive feat. It's like, I'm watching it and going like, how do I feel about this movie? I don't know. I like, it was really like, it, it's one of the few movies that I've watched where I'm like, I do like it and I don't like it. And like, it's like, it's a, uh, it's magical in that way. Yeah. I mean, I'm fascinated by how polarizing it is. Cause this seems like one of the safer movies on the list for sure. Mm -hmm. And it just seems to have dropped into the world like a bomb. I mean, there were protests in a small town in Minnesota because it was the only film that played at the local movie theater for 40 weeks and the wow. students just lost their minds. It was a college town. The students just started holding up signs that said, 40 weeks of schmaltz is enough. And protesting the theater. I mean, that's amazing. A film with this much reaction. It well, have, it's fascinating. I mean, this is also one of the only five films that Mao ever let people see from America. I mean, that's crazy. And, you know, but this is, we talked about this is before about um, when it was in Austria and Germany. This movie is not popular there. That movie is... The Trap Family, which came out in 1956, and The Trap Family in America in 1958, which is, I guess, the sequel, they're much more successful films in Germany. So, like, obviously, uh, even though it's pretty whitewashed, the Nazism in this film, this movie is not even accepted really in Germany. And But it got me thinking about this film. Like, there's probably not another film, even Singing in the Rain, um, that is on par with this as far as what it is as a juggernaut. Right there's I can't think of another movie musical that is as big as this movie as far reaching 40 weeks in the theater 5 years on the VHS charts but is there a movie a, a musical that you feel like just for argument's sake cuz I don't think we could take this off the list um is there a movie that you believe should maybe be on this list like what is a good another good movie musical because I think there are better movie versions of musicals I mean I'm with you in that I'd swap out Mary Poppins for this in a heartbeat. Yeah. I think the songs are just as good, if not better. Honestly, I think they're deeper. There's a lot of lyrics in the in the songs mm -hmm. here that kind of creep me out. I mean, especially the one in I Have 16 going on 17, where, you know, and I do think this is written a little bit in tongue-in-cheek, but where Rolf, the Nazi, is like, your life, little girl, is an empty page that men will want to write on. Hmm. I mean, totally unprepared are you to face the world of men. You need someone older and wiser telling you what to do. And then they do this little dance that looks like, almost like she's a show pony or a little yeah. show dog running around in circles, which, I mean, I really like actually the actress who plays her, Charmian Carr. She wrote a book about this. And she says that when she was doing that little leap from bench to bench to bench, her costume shoes didn't have rubber soles on them. So she leapt from one bench to the other bench and immediately skidded right through the gazebo and broke all the glass. Oh, wow. Yeah. Yeah. She's kind of fascinating, by the way. She says that, you know, this was really the only movie that she made. This is really the only movie that most of the kids ever made. You know, the kids had a hard time escaping getting typecast on this, too. Uh, one of the kids, the second oldest one, the one who kind of can seem a little bit like a sociopath, 
she wound up uh, posing for Playboy. But Charmian wound up becoming a, um, she married a dentist and became an interior designer. And one of her clients she got connected to because she had been in the LA Times and there was this profile like, what happened to her? Oh, she's married to a dentist and living in Encino. One of her clients moved to Encino because he thought, well, if it's good enough for the girl who was in Sound of Music, it's good enough for me. Called her up, said, help me decorate my house. And his name was Michael Jackson. Wow. Yeah. So Charmian Liesel decorated Michael Jackson's Encino house, which was the one that had all of the mannequins everywhere. Yes, Have yes. Have you I, seen the mannequins? I, by the way, I went to the Michael Jackson auction. I saw all the mannequins. I went to the Michael Jackson auction. Oh, I love that. Oh, my God. That we could amazing. have been friends. That would have been really fun. Wow. Do you go on the tour bus? No. It was really fun. Wow. Well, now I'm jealous. Um, but yeah, I mean, I think that there's more magic in some of the cinematography of Mary Poppins. I think that film is a more beautiful film, to be honest. I, I think Mary Poppins is a better film where we come, the, the argument with this is like, but is it a more of a cultural phenomenon? Because look, there's so many better, I think there's better movie musicals. I'm not saying like, uh, you know, Moulin Rouge should be on this list, but I mean, I could interestingly make a case for Hedwig, you know, oh, like, yeah. you know, to be like, oh, well, here's something that's very, very different. Like if we're talking about like, what's different, what's interesting. I mean, but Hedwig doesn't have the cultural, um, it, it's not, it's not, you know, not going to be on the top charts for five years. Not financially, but you could make an argument that Hedwig helped expand definitions. That's what I, that's what I was going to say. Like there's something about the representation of Hedwig that you've never really seen. And something that like, that kind of blows the roof off. Then you have Singing in the Rain, which is kind of commenting on the movie industry, but doing it in a really fun way. And it's meta. It's really interesting. You know, they actually asked Stanley Donan and Gene Wilder to direct Sound of Music when they were looking for a director. Of here. course they did. They want to re, they want to just yeah. make sure they make another one. And they said no. They didn't totally actually offer it to Billy Wilder, but he said no musical with a swastika in it can ever be successful. And then <laughs> I mean, add, yeah. it is hilarious. I remember watching that on NBC when they did the live version of it. And and when they unrolled those Nazi flags and you just see like NBC, like just Nazi flags all over. Apparently at one point, William Wyler, our buddy from mm-hmm. Ben-Hur and Best Years of Our Lives, got pretty serious about making the film. He didn't want to and mm-hmm. he hated it, but he agreed to do it anyways. And... All he really was interested in, he thought like most of the movie was garbage, but he really was into the Nazi stuff and he wanted to have guns and he wanted to have tanks and he wanted to have more of this military Mm. presence in the film. And the studio and Austria was like, I don't know about that. And finally, he they kind of politely figured out a way where it was like, I'd rather do this other film. And they're like, great, go have fun. And then he told people, I can't bear to make a picture about all these nice Nazis. (sighs) Well, there you go. I mean, yeah, the Nazi does let, help them get away. I mean, that's really the and the Nazi does help them out at the end. But wouldn't you want to see like the Charmian version of this movie where it's like, I almost married a Nazi? <laughs> I'm fascinated by that. She by falls way, in love with a Nazi. Yes, yes, I would love to see that. Who rats out her family almost at the end? He can't decide if he wants to rat her out or not. Yeah, but he seems to be okay if possibly she might be captured. Well, yeah. I mean, look. I'm all for uh, retelling. Like, should we Rosencrantz and Guildenstern this? I mean, like, let's do it. Let's, let's get the Charmaine version of it. Yeah, I mean, people have and been call doing it, Don't that. squeeze the Charmaine. <laughs> wow. No. no, really? Did I nail it? You, yeah, it? yeah, you nailed it. I mean, people have been doing like retro fits of the sound of music from the Baroness's point of view, which I'm very. Oh, really? With. Yeah, there was. Um, well, Grace was- Kelly have been better as a Baroness. I know she was up for it. I think she would have been. I think this Baroness is perfect. I love okay. Eleanor Park. I think she has such a light sense of the humor in this and the mm-hmm. grace. You know, when she, when she's very classily telling the captain that it's okay if they break up, 
mm-hmm. you know, and he goes and makes that girl not a nun anymore. You can see all these layers in her of like her poise, her regret that she's losing the captain to this idiot. Mm-hmm. Um, her her need to emerge with grace and kind of her generosity as well. I think it's really lovely. But yeah, there is a play or a musical called The Von Traps and Me that's from the Baroness's point of view. I need to see this. You do. And I feel very backed up because there was an article um, about this from the Baroness's point of view. Okay. McSweeney's did this article that I love. It's called, I regret to inform you that my wedding to Captain Von Trapp has been canceled. And it includes this line. It says, it seems Captain Von Trapp and I misunderstood each other. I assumed he was looking for a wife of taste and sophistication who was a dead ringer for Tippy Hedren. Instead, he wanted to marry a curtain-wearing religious fanatic who shouts every word she says. I must admit I am worried what will become of them now that I have gone. I had planned to send them to boarding school since their education at the moment seems to consist mostly of marching around Salzburg singing scales. I think it would have been particularly helpful for the eldest daughter who seems intent on losing her virginity to the mailman. Uh, love <laughs> Team that. Baroness, man. She's Team incredible. Baroness, I am on board. Amy, we've talked about the reviews. We've talked about where it belongs on the list. We talked about wondering to replace this movie. But now there is one question that is left. Is there a Simpsons? I mean, of course. There is. There is. The one that I picked is from an episode called Yokel Chords. Okay. And the setup here is that Cletus's family of seven kids has been discovered in the woods. They have not been educated and they have not left the woods. Mm. And so Lisa takes the family under her wing. She decides to show them around Springfield and they wind up becoming a singing band underneath the tutelage of Krusty the Clown. But this is Lisa singing to them about all the wonders they can discover in Springfield once they leave their backwood shack. The city is a treasure trove of culture and multiculture. Mistos and lattes and grandes and ventis browsing at bookstores with fat cognoscentes. Books about Dolly, Dika, and Miro. Those are the folks that you yokels should know. Pretentious laughs at food well retrospectives. Outsider art made by mental defectives. Enjoying Opry that ain't grand or wrong. Comparing Jim Carrey to Dario Fo. Hmm. Your minds are opening. Take it home. Eating tapas. Freestyle rappers. Mrs. Skinner is main. We finally experienced cultural things. And now they don't seem so lame. I mean, amazing. Of course, this is like one of the most parodied things of all time. Uh, you know, and maybe that's the reason why it feels so familiar. I don't know. Like, um, and I, I always like to embrace things that are beloved like this. I feel like you can't, I think you can be critical of these things, but you have to respect. There's so few things that have staying power like this. Um, and that, that connect to so many people. And I think that that is always worth, uh, you know, embracing. And, you know, if it's Shawshank, if it's, uh, if it's Sound of Music, I think go for it. Why, why am I here to do it? You know, why am I here to take it away from you? But, you know, we do have two. You're no Nazi. I'm no Nazi. Look, you want to enjoy it, you know, enjoy it. I mean, maybe part of why this sounds so familiar to you as well is a little hit from Gwen Stefani. My favorite song. <laughs> Lay, 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 lay,
boy. I mean, that video is chock full of Sound of Music references. There's even Rubber Sheep. I love it all. Um, <laughs> all right, Amy. I mean, I don't know if it's as cool as the T-Gem remix from the end of this movie. A drink with jam and bread. A drink with jam and bread. Jam and bread with jam and bread. Tea with jam and bread. Tea with jam and bread. Jam and bread. Jam and bread. Tea with jam. Jam and bread. Jam and bread. Tea with jam. Jam and bread. That's a banger. I mean, that is, I mean, that is <laughs> really great. Um, it is. I mean, I think my favorite thing, though, about that whole scene is just the way a dude says Third Reich a couple of minutes later. You have to hear this. All right. Dude. All right. Thank you, ladies and gentlemen. Thank you. The festival competition has come to its conclusion, except, of course, we don't know yet what that conclusion will be. And while the judges are arriving at their decision, I have been given permission to offer you an encore. This will be the last opportunity the Von Trapps will have of singing together for a long, long time. Even now, officials are waiting in this auditorium to escort Captain Von Trapp to his new command in the naval forces of the Third Reich. Yeah. Uh, that's amazing. I never heard that. That's amazing. Oh, Third Reich. <laughs> Third Reich. Wow. Third Reich. Oh, my gosh. Oh, by the way, while we're talking about weird things of this, and we don't need to hear the clip, um, but how 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 much of a neg is it mm-hmm. that when Maria finally gets married, she walks down the aisle to um, how do you solve a problem like Maria? We didn't realize that. Yeah. Okay. Okay. Maybe we'll oh, show this. Oh, yes. Next. You're right. I did remember that. I was like, that yeah. is odd. Yeah. Okay, you know, yeah, let's listen to it because it's so fucked up. And maybe yes. part of the problem is that when she gets married, she's like in the in the church with all the nuns, and she locks the nuns behind her in an iron fence, and then goes get married with all of these other people from the village that she doesn't know. Like literally, every person from Salzburg must be at this wedding who we've never seen her talk to. But the nuns are behind a fence. But meanwhile, is- these nuns took all the car parts out, so they were able to yeah. save her a fucking ass. Exactly. But maybe that's why these nuns are negging. I mean, that's crazy. This is the problem with this movie. Like, you watch it and you're like, I like that song. And you're not looking at the fact that she's getting married to that song. Yeah. How do you solve a problem like this bitch getting married right now? Like, is it you marry her? You marry is that her. The th- yeah. Maybe that is. You're right. You marry her and then she becomes boring and calm. Yeah. She's, how do you pin down a cloud? You marry her and then she becomes the most boring person in the movie. That's what I'm saying. Marry these women. Get them to shut up. <laughs> Next week, you and I are going to be going into the Academy Award winning, best foreign language film winning, best 
original screenplay and director winning film, Parasite, which is in theaters now. It is also streaming. Um, we are going to get into it all. And we want to hear from you as well. You know, Amy, we talked about this earlier on the podcast. It's the first time a foreign language film has won Best Picture. But there are many foreign films that have been up for the Oscars in the past. Um, what would be your vote if you could retroactively give a Best Picture award to a foreign film? What would it be? Uh, and uh, let us know at 747 666 5824. That's 747 666 5824. And next week, we'll be getting into Parasite. So go see it. If you've not seen it yet, um, it is uh, it's a really fun film. And it's and I think go in not knowing much about it if you have not seen it. And I think also go in knowing that you will have a good time. It's, a, it's an interesting movie. It's, it's not like I, I, it's different than what I think you might even expect it is. Because I don't know if people even know what to expect. So just go in with an open mind and, and no information. love a classic chocolate chip cookie. Famous Amos has been making them since the 70s, 1975 to be exact. With semi-sweet chocolate chips and a satisfying crunch, it's everything classic in one bite-sized cookie. And fans couldn't get enough. That's right. You'll find our original recipe, the one you know and love, in every bag of Famous Amos original chocolate chip cookies. Find Famous Amos anywhere you buy your favorite snacks. Life is a highway, and on it there will be many chicken sandwiches. But there's only one crispy. so go ahead and hit the turn signal if you know about this juicy gem of a detour.